Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode one, two, three of the Simple Life podcast. That was very fun. I'm looking forward to the next few episodes where I get to do that until, again, we run out of hand gestures until my brain doesn't think fast enough to figure out what numbers I get to do that again with. Uh, but anyway, folks, um, obviously, summer, gone, weather, crap. I'm not going to rant on about the usual stuff that I do and complain uh, because today's guest comes from the beautiful... Uh, Southwest, no, Southeast, my geography is terrible, of America. Um, and I really want to just delve straight in. I don't want to give you my usual waffle and crap. Uh, this is probably going to be a long episode, so maybe pause now. Empty your bladders, you know, stock your pipes and your bongs, get your joints rolled. You're going to want to fucking listen to this story. So today's guest <laughs> is uh, a self-described saltwater cowboy and prolific veteran smuggler who between 1979 and 1989 was in charge of an international cannabis smuggling operation responsible for the import of get this an estimated 30 million pounds which is approximately 13.6 million kilograms um or as we've just worked out about 35 ish airbus a380s uh worth of cannabis into the florida everglades uh they are tim mcbride and i cannot wait to, to hear this story how are you doing tim I'm doing great, Sipa. Thanks, buddy, for having me on, man. I, I love my UK fans, dude. They're just awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for them to... Yeah, particularly, I'm, I'm excited to impart this bit of, uh, you know, Southwest Florida, even American history is actually what we're going to be talking about with um, history of the Caribbean marijuana industry in, in particular. Definitely. But, and that, um, that has... Thanks again. For, for sure for sure we have a, a slight delay so we're going to try and uh or i'm going to try and be a bit, bit patient with the way i speak obviously my audience would be quite aware that i like to jibber jabber um but i think yeah this, this is the wonderful tie-in here of the caribbean roots of the cannabis culture here in the uk that came with the Windrush generation uh, that we had post the second world war and dub and reggae culture um so it's i think it's going to be a lot of kind of crossover um over the pond as it were with, with the topics here but as you see i think that this story uh along with you know one of my, my personal heroes in the uk uh, howard marks um and others it's who's starting to fill in the narrative of how everybody basically got high because of a, a couple of people not a couple but a small tight-knit group of people around the world that you know really went above and beyond at time when people were facing execution by you know firing squads and hanging for, for such things in regions around the world so i you know doth my cap to you for everything that you've done and without further ado let's jump into this man <laughs> No, absolutely. And you know what? You are absolutely correct in the fact that, you know, and, I'm, and I've always got to stress this, you know, regardless, you know, because of the story in which you're about to hear is as fantastic as it is. You have to understand and as well as I do that we weren't the only ones hauling pot through the Caribbean or anywhere. You know, that's let's just get that out of the way. And I don't intend to be to 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 come off as being that. The story that I wrote in the in the one I grew in the industry that I grew up in is a story in which involves a small town of just under 500 people, and a town in which half the population was involved in what we were doing, and learned over the period of nearly 40 years and three generations how to integrate this behavior into a way of life, and run these southern waters in the caribbean with literal impunity <laughs> this is the story that i impart and everybody out there you know that understands the cannabis and the history of cannabis and you're 
your guy right down there. God bless him. You know, and God bless everybody who, who made a shot at it, whether you got away with it or didn't get away with it, man, you know, you were helping support the demand that was crucially and, you know, and, and that people were, you know, and a product that people were craving at that time. And I just happened to, you know, kind of trip and fell almost right into it, you know, and that's, um, I think that's where we should begin. Um, um, of course, obviously at the beginning, you know, and I had, um, I'd grown up in North Carolina. My father was 82nd Airborne in the Army and took a job out of the Army in the Midwest, which took me along with them because I was still, you know, a young man. And I did my four years of high school in a, in a, in a small southern Wisconsin town. And um, having finished high school and being bored with, you know, what was going on. And I had always been, you know, the kind of person that where if, you know, something came along that sounded like it was a good deal or it was, you know, different or new or exciting or whatever the case may be, you know, I just decided just to go do it, you know, because I had adopted this philosophy early on whereby I did never wanted to look back on my life and kick myself in the ass and say, geez, I wish I'd have fucking done that. <laughs> you know, I just went and did it. Then I would relieve myself of any regret of having not done whatever it was, that, you know, mm -hmm. but opportunities come and go and like normal, like human beings, opportunities are passed and, you know, along and like that. Well, uh, early, actually late 1970s, say 79, um, my neighbor was my, my dearest friend. His sister had, had moved to Florida and she was married to, a, to, uh, one of the locals down in, down here in Everglades on, on Chocolusky Island. If you will Google Everglades City, um, you'll find out that there's a little island attached by the causeway called Chokolowski. It's 139 acres of just, you know, paradise. And it's nestled uh, in the northwest corner of the Everglades National Park in an area that's described as the 10,000 islands. And it, it is quite literally a labyrinth of 10,000 islands that stretches nearly 50 miles of our southwest Florida coastline. And it is anywhere from four to five miles deep. And it's just this outlandish labyrinth. Look it up, Google it, 10,000 Islands, and you'll be amazed. But this was our playground as kids. This is where we lived, we worked. This is where we lived. This is where we played, where we water skied, where we fucked off all the time. So we knew these areas in and out like the back of our hands. Mm -hmm. You know, but an outsider, no matter who you are, I don't care if you're local sheriff department or whatever, if you're not from that area like that and you're not in those islands every day, we're going to lose you. And that's mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that's one of the reasons what made what we did so successful um, was the geography in which we had to work. But that being said, I was what was described by our United States government as a third generation pot hauler, pot smuggler. And what that meant quite literally was that us as kids, guys and gals, I mean, it wasn't just the guys involved. The gals were involved in this as well, because when you're talking about a town of just under 400 people and half the town was doing it, I mean, you got to include them as well. Um, so the first we learned from the fathers and uncles and older cousins and grandpas that were still around and like that. They in turn learned from that generation before them fathers and uncles and older cousins and people like that. So we wound up being the kids of the second generation. And when we got to into our early 20s, um, and we were working on stone crabbing. Stone crabbing and fishing in that area was the industry 
was the major industry um, um, in that area. And stone crabs are a delicacy that are found only in these Southwest Florida waters. And they're sold all over the world for ridiculous prices. And they're caught in traps that are about, I don't know how you would say this in metric, but I'll have to tell you like in, in, in inches here, probably about 28 inches wide facing. They're probably about a 12, maybe a foot and a half, say 18 inches tall. And deep wise, that may be 14, 15, 16 inches. They're not very big, but but the bottom six inches of these things are full of concrete. They're heavy as shit. They're like 50 pounds almost. Some of them are 60 pounds. And the reason that big chunk is in there is because when we take our catch out of this trap and I go to push it off the back of the boat and put it back in the water when it's rebated, it has to land on its bottom because mm -hmm. the crabs have to get through the top. So that weight, every time you push it off, doesn't matter. It's going to land on the bottom, just you know, like it's supposed to. Mm. We had six thousand traps, and I don't know if you're in the UK or or um, um, have the ability to to have seen a program called Deadliest Catch. And deadliest catch, um, yeah. Filmed in Australia, filmed in Alaska, and it's mm. done by Raw TV, which is out of the UK. Um, but it's similar to the way they do their traps and only in the fact of, of how the mechanics of it work. We're not going to say our traps aren't a thousand pounds. They're only 50, mm -hmm. but the means by which you catch and pull the buoys in are similar. We don't throw a grapple hook and grab between two floating bags that have a rope. Ours has a small, about, about just smaller than a soccer ball or a football size rather, uh, um, styrofoam ball with a rope on it. That's only three eighths inch nylon. It's mm -hmm. not an inch rope, it's three eighths inch long. But the mechanisms by which this works is we don't throw a grapple, we have a catch pole with a hook on it. We grab that buoy and we pull it up and pull us through a block and tackle and that, that spinning thing that you see on Deadliest Catch, mm -hmm. that they put the rope in and it, what it is is actually designed like two pieces of pot, two pipe hands like this. And when you put the rope in the center of them, it reaches that squeeze point and begins to pull on the rope as it's turning. And they have a piece on the bottom like ours does. It's called their, uh, a knife, but it's not really a knife. It's designed to kick the rope back out so it doesn't continue to wrap around that. They use so much line, they put it in a coiler and recoil it. Ours are at the most 80 feet long, so they're just coiling at our feet. Hmm. But the traps are set. We do 600 a day. We were pulling 600 traps a day. I would pull 600, and the guy on the other side, which was the port side uh, puller, on the stern, port side stern, which was my best friend who I came down to Florida with, and we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to uh, impart to you how this stone crabbing was done, you know, briefly. Mm. And he would reach out and grab a buoy and pull his buoy. Now he's pulling his trap. Now he's clearing it and cleaning it and rebaiting it and getting it ready to shove back in the water while the boat's moving up to the next buoy. When I grab my buoy and start to pull my trap on board, he's pushing his back in. So for every one we pick up, we drop one. Every one we pick up, we drop one. And this goes for the first half is 300 traps, and then we'll have lunch. But that first half can run as far as 20, 21, 22 miles based on the distance that traps are spread apart. Mm -hmm. Then we skip over about 75 yards or, say, 60 meters or so, and pull the other 300 back the direction we came. So we're not twice as far away from where we began. Mm -hmm. 
So this is an all day and ongoing process. And I'll tell you what, man, it's such ball busting fucking work. It'll make a man out of you just stone crabbing. And the typical stone crabber as a crewmate as a man as a crewmate, you know, and they're coming from all over the country and they're only last maybe a half a season. Mm. One season and they've had enough of it. And the turnover is 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 quick on deck. But a lot of the guys in town that, that I grew up with, you know, that are working these vessels, and there's probably 25, 30 boats in the fleet between Everglades and Chocolusky Island. And nearly every one of those boats was involved in doing what I'm about to tell you what we were doing. Now, I had come down from uh, from Florida to meet with my friend. Um, he he invited me down, actually called me. I, I had just gotten back from LA and he called me. He says, hey, dude, I'm going to Florida tomorrow. I'm moving. I'm going to go work on a fishing boat because his sister married one of the locals. Mm-hmm. And he was the man, and they both managed the only fish house on Chocolusky Island. So they were local, and everybody knew them. So when we were, when he came down, he said, "You want to go with me?" And I said, "Hell yeah, dude!" So I packed my Mustang, and the next day I was gone. Because, like I said earlier, I'm one of those guys that I'm not passing up opportunity. You know, I'm mm-hmm. just going to go park and shit. So I packed my shit. Next thing I know, we're we're down on the island. But I hadn't had prearranged any kind of a job or anything like that, other than. His sister and brother-in-law were building a new home, and I said, "Well, you know, I'll tend for the masons and the, you know, in the, in the uh, you know, the, the carpenters and what like that. Just, you know, just make some, make some money, you know, I don't give a shit." And Mark went ahead. My buddy, uh, Mark went ahead and got the job on the boat. Well, there was two people actually. There's three people on the boat. There's a captain. There's a first and second mate. And the first and second mate were at the stern, like I was telling you, back and forth mm-hmm. with the traps. <laughs> Excuse me. At this time, they had a guy on there from, I think it was like from Michigan or some shit. And, and um, Captain Billy, <clears throat> excuse me, Captain Red in the book, Captain Billy didn't really know this guy or who he was from, you know, we knew where he was from, but didn't really know anything about him. And they're very leery about people like that because of this small town, you know, obviously, you know, and, and at that time it was just, you know, you hear the rumors or you, you hear the stories, you know, every now and then you'll, you know, the ghost stories about pothole and stuff like that, you know, and it's never actually very real until you see it. Well, Captain Billy obviously was itching bad to get back. You know, he wanted to get back into the business, back into Pollard because everybody's working now. You know, it's that time of year. So it didn't take, but maybe a week for them to work this guy to do. He quit because it's real easy to do on a work boat like that. I mean, you can bust somebody's balls real quick. So this guy said, "Fuck it." He took off, and that's when they, that's when Billy says, "Go get your buddy Tim. Let's get him on board. You know, let's go to work." So they imparted to me the story about how it works. You know, you get up at you know three in the morning or so, and you get on the boat because it takes hours to get to some of the lines. You know, wherever you're going at that day. And as the sun's coming up and it's just ge- becoming dawn, you start pulling that first buoy because you got a, a lot of traps to get through, man. Mm-hmm. Most boats in the fleets are only pulling 400, 450, maybe traps a day. We're pulling 600 because, mm-hmm. you know, you had this shit figured out. So they told me how you get up early, blah, 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 like this. So I get on the boat that morning about 3 a.m. and I get in the bunks are in the wheelhouse where the captain is. I'm on the bottom bunk, Mark's on top. And, uh, I wake up, you know, and the boat stopped and the sun's up. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they told me we were starting when the, you know, sun just barely comes up and what the fuck. So I leaned over and I looked out of the bunk and there's Captain Billy sitting in his chair with his big shit eating grin on his face. And he goes, Timmy, he says, buddy, we're not going to pull traps today. He says, um, we're going to go offshore, you know, later on tonight and unload a pot boat from Columbia. 
<laughs> and I, I mean, just like that out of the blue. And I said, okay, cool. You know, why not? But it wound up being a bit of a tongue and a cheek going affair with my buddy, Mark and Captain Billy. They knew what was going on. They figured to spring it on me when I got out there and just see my reaction. You know, I said, cool, let's go. So my first day working on that boat, I never saw one trap. Mm. We stayed out there and goofed off offshore. And then later on that evening, about four hours or so before dark, Captain Billy made a call sign, which every boat that we approached from that point on had a particular call sign. And when that caller, when that call sign is 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 answered, that boat knows that whoever's coming to it is the one that should be and not to freak out. So four hours or so before sundown, we'll approach the boat. Mm-hmm. Well, not to get into any great detail at this point in time. We wound up putting 15 tons, 15,000 U.S. pounds of shit on our boat and headed back into shore with it. Once we got back into the, we couldn't take it through the pass and get it to our island. You had to go through this labyrinth of, like I said, 10,000 islands, which was our barrier. Our island was in the back of those islands near the, near the, near the mainland. Mm. And you had to go through that labyrinth of islands to get to Chukaluski where we lived and what happened we would pull up just to the edge of the islands and 15 20 30 little boats with two guys on each one that could go shallow would come up next to our boat like flies on a garbage can man and one of their guys would jump on and just start throwing them on their boat everybody's grabbing and throwing and unloading and they're making paths that we've got a prearranged course through the islands that nobody takes Mm-hmm. To get it to one of our buddies' houses at, in, for a load this size, one of our buddies' houses that we've taken all the furniture out of, these boats run in there, and they get it off onto the dock and hand it to the people on shore. And the guys on shore, which is the shore crew, they're running it up to the front door or the back door of the house, and they're throwing it inside. And the guys inside are stacking it in the bedroom, bathrooms, kitchens, dining room, <laughs> living rooms closets man anywhere you could stick a bale of fucking weed there was one in there you know Mm. and they would continue this until our boat was empty then we would go offshore to wherever and typically sit next to a line of traps that we might want to pull some on the next day before coming in and clean our boat clean everything down scrub it get all the seeds and all the shit because caribbean marijuana at that time um was seedy you know, there was males born with females all over the fucking place. It didn't matter, you know. Um, the science and you know that that we are available that's available to us today, and the understanding rather, you know, uh, wasn't there at the time, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't able to do in mass quantities such as this. If you you know when you look down through the mountains and all you can you know see through the valley, as far as I can see, and there's weed growing, it's hard to get those female plants out, of those male plants out of there, you know. But mm-hmm. that being said, um. I wasn't really uh, understanding at that time the entire scenario about the shore crew and what ta- what happened after we passed it off to them. But all I know is the next day, we you know when we uh, got up, we we pulled maybe you know 100 to 300 traps to get some crab and came back in, and you know rested for the evening and stuff. And then we would get up that next morning. I got up at like 3:30 that next morning and you know headed out to go work to go work today. You know. Well, again, I wake up and the sun's up <laughs> and I look over and I look out at Billy and again, he goes, sorry, Timmy, no traps today, buddy. He says, we're going for 22 tons tonight, <laughs> 44,000 pounds. Boy. And I said, okay, let's go. So my first two days working on this fishing vessel were the first two days, I, the nights I ever hauled pot from, Colum- from Colombian vessels. And I never saw the first trap 
I never saw a trap one, man. <laughs> but, you know, that third day, of course, we went on to working and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. in the two nights in those, you know, 15 tons and 22 tons um, collectively, I made what was called rookie pay at that time. I made $5,000, 5000 US that each night mm-hmm. and 10 grand. Well, in 1979, you know, even $10,000, $12,000 was, was an excellent blue collar wage at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, damn, I just made a year's pay in, you know, two nights. That was that was cool. But now that the captain understood that he had a crew that was willing and actually able to do the work that we were doing, um, my pay then increased to the size of the load we were hauling. So now I'm making anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars US a night. And I just I just turning 21 years old, man, you know, um, you know, and our job at that time, you know, like I said, and, uh, we would work two, three nights and then you'd have to take off because, you know, when you're unloading, ultimately you're unloading vessels that have, you know, um, as much as 30 tons, 40 mm-hmm. tons. I've seen ships out there that were anchored for three, four days with as much as 300,000 U.S. pounds on them. And we would take three and four nights at a time to go out and unload this ship. Mm. But we would work two or three nights, and then a couple of the other boats would jump in, and they would do their share because you can't continue to work like that. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about you know a, a, a humping 800 to 1,000, 80-pound, say, 35, 37 kilos each, 800 of them to 1,000 of them, and you're moving them twice a night, you can't be expected to continue to do that day after day after day. You'd fucking kill you. So we'd work as much as we could for three days, and then we'd take a couple of days off and let a couple of the other boats. That's how the whole town, half the town, was involved in it. I mean, Mm -hmm. and there were times we would go out to unload a boat, and I'll tell you about this one in particular. We went off one evening, three boats like our boat, and and I'll um, we'll put up some we'll put up some pictures to kind of correlate, you know, with what I'm talking about. A picture of the boat that I actually worked on, me standing on the stern of it, and it would be, you know, three commercial fishing vessels, 50 feet, 51 foot in length. Um, the beam, which is the width of the boat at its widest, you know, at midship, mm. say 15 feet. And the, the wheelhouses are all forward with the bunks in the wheelhouse and the captain and all that kind of stuff. And the entire deck and the entire back of the boat is designed to carry the traps that we're working. We could put 600 traps on our boat, you know, and 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 still carry that weight out to the out to the fishing grounds because that was really nothing. But the boats, as they were designed for traps, were perfectly designed and suited to all stack bales of weed on, mm-hmm. you know. So that being said. We would work two, three nights in a row and sit back and, you know, and then let these other guys work and these guys work. But there was this, you know, there were several times and one time in particular where it took three boats. We were expecting um, just over 30 tons, just over 60,000 U.S. pounds we figured was on this boat. So we thought, OK, let's send three boats. We could put 30,000. We could put as much as, you know, almost 50,000 pounds on our one boat. But. We decided to send three boats, each take 20 tons each or 20,000 pounds each. 
spread the load out, we can move faster, we can get the job quick done quicker, because we only have between the time the sun goes down to the time the sun comes up to get this mm-hmm. shit from offshore, inshore, in somebody's house, one or two or even three, four houses that we've literally taken the furniture out of and stuff them full, that has to be done before the sun comes up. Otherwise, we're caught with our fucking, you know, with our pants down. Yeah. So that being said, we got three boats and we're sitting out shore and we're swimming, we're diving, we're getting stoned and we're fucking off. We're waiting, you know, for our time to work, you know, for the, you know, typically about four hours before the sun goes down. But that afternoon, we're out there screwing off and out of nowhere, I mean, here comes this single engine Cessna aircraft. And it was, it was flying like maybe 25 feet off of the water coming at us. And when you're, you can't hear an airplane coming at you when it's flying 20 feet off the water. I don't care. I mean, it, until it gets right on top of you and then you can hear it. Mm. Well, this thing came over and it was just right over our heads, almost hit our low end antenna, which is our uh, navigational antenna, which today your GPS back then mm-hmm. was, uh, was, was called a LORAN, which is uh, an acronym for long range aid to navigation. We're triangulating radio signals in order. And they were fairly accurate at that time, but then GPS didn't exist. Well, he flies over our boat and he goes up and he banks and he turns like this. And all of a sudden we realize who this is. This is Daryl. This is Daryl Daniels. He's the guy that's running the show. Mm. Him and his four brothers, him and his other four brothers were the ones that were actually putting us all to work and making all this shit happen, right? Well, here comes Daryl. He flies around, or circles around, and he throws a milk carton out the window, and it all letters down, and he hits the water. And We pull over to it, and I grabbed it with my catch pole that we used to guess the traps and pull it on board. There's a note inside. So Captain Billy, he takes the note out, and it says, one of you three vessels needs to go to these coordinates and he puts the latitude and longitude on there. He says, because there's another boat over here that needs to be unloaded as well. So one of you guys has got to go work this, right? So we're waiting to unload a boat. There's another one waiting, you know, to get loaded. They didn't know they had a vessel out there and they knew two of us could get the load comfortably enough, you know? So we stayed with the original job. The other two flipped a coin and one took off. So there was two of us now. So here we are. And we're about maybe 30 miles offshore. International waters on, on the Gulf side of the United States is, is uh, territorial limits are 30 miles. Beyond that, you're in international water. And it's very difficult to get a boat to come in closer than that um, for radar reasons and, you know, and surveillance purposes and whatever like that. But there wasn't a lot of that in those days, surprisingly enough. Um, but um, this boat was expected to have 30 tons. A little more, maybe 62,000, 63,000 U.S. pounds. Mm-hmm. And we figured out that we could get, you know, that's about 450 pieces each, you know, on each boat, roughly, blah, blah, like that, blah, blah, blah. So um, about four hours before sundown, this scenario, Billy goes, Captain Billy goes into his Billy, Billy, Billy and he's waiting. He says it twice. We wait about 20, 30 seconds. Come back, Felipe, Felipe, Zorro, come on. That means approach us. And we are always sitting on what is re- referred to as the horizon. We're, we're sitting just beyond the horizon, and that's the that's the distance at which the further away you get from stuff, you know, it shrinks and shrinks mm-hmm. in the distance, also it disappears. Well, there's two things you're dealing with. You're dealing with distance, and you're also dealing with the, the 
curvature of the earth, actually. Mm-hmm. So you go out of sight. So we would sit beyond that uh, horizon line out of sight of the vessel until we make that call. Then we approach it. Mm-hmm. So that gives us that gives that crew time to start, um, you know, bringing his stuff down from below and getting it up on deck, you know. And at this, with this scenario, I mean, this ship had to been, you know, it was 450 feet if it was a foot long. <laughs> I mean, this thing was huge. And the weather deck was probably 16 feet above our deck. And as we're getting closer, we're seeing these guys. There's probably, I don't know, God, I'd have to guess at least 70 guys on this boat. And they were single file back to back going down one hatch door into the bilge and coming out on the other side out of another hatch door from the bilge back to back with a bale of weed on their shoulders. And each one of these is between 60 and 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they're walking over to the edge and they're throwing them off. They'll throw some off on that boat, our boat, that boat, our boat, back and forth like this. And these things were hitting the deck. Our, they're hitting our fiberglass deck and then we're starting to hear it crack and crunch and we're going, oh, shit, they're going to destroy our boat. But because there were so many guys, I mean, I'm talking back to back, these fuckers were going down one hole and coming out another, carrying this shit and mm-hmm. throwing, but, but our own ability to keep up with, you know, what they were doing kind of solved that problem because they started to pile up. Now mm-hmm. they're hitting one another. So they're cushioning the blow like this. And, but, you know, we're, we're, you know, you're having to watch and, you know, snatch and go. And we're putting them everywhere you can stick them. They're on the bow. They're on the sides around the wheelhouse. They're on the top of the boat on the wheelhouse, <laughs> stacked up just high enough so the radar could turn. <laughs> and then straight back, we're just stacking, stacking, stacking. And, you know, Captain Billy, he's having to stay at the, at the controls and keep the boat against the ship because this isn't one a scenario whereby you can you know throw a rope and tie off mm. these guys are 16 feet above us you know so billy's counting you know counting says oh, we should be about there timmy and i yell up to this captain he's leaning against this rail you know he's peeling an orange and he goes i, I yell up to him i go how many more and he looks down at me and he goes in this fucked up accent he goes 50 more. So I'm thinking, okay, 50 more guys, 50 more. So that meant 25 there, about 25 our boat or whatever like that. So we're counting 50 and then we get to 60, 70, 80, and then hundred. We're like, Jesus Christ. Mm. So all three of us now, me and Mark and Captain Billy, we all up to this guy. We're saying, how many more of these buckers are? And the captain looks down at us. He goes, 50 more. Mm-hmm. And, now, and now I'm thinking this is the only number this guy knows. <laughs> what language he's speaking, but this is probably the only number this guy knows. But and we quite literally, you know, they're still throwing this shit. We had to, um, because you know, if you're familiar with fishing vessels of any kind, or even a boat, just you know, ordinary boat on a lake and whatever like that, they have what's called scupper holes. And what scupper holes are do do on the stern of the boat is if any water or, or rainwater or water splashes onto the deck of the boat, it can run to the back and go out those little holes. Well, on our fishing vessels, we have scupper holes as well, and they're down great level with the deck. Mm-hmm. But the water line is another two foot below that scupper hole. Well, as they fill the boat, the boat gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and it's approaching those scuppers. Now, if those scuppers go underwater, we're starting to take on water and then we're going to sink. 
So we literally had to, you know, say, it's enough, but it didn't work. They were still throwing these damn things. So we had to take a life jacket from the wheelhouse, cut the guts and the foam out of this life jacket and stuff those scupper hose full. I mean, pack them like that. So we're not going to sink. And while we're doing that, Captain Billy, he starts the boat and, and Captain Blackass, the other captain on the other boat, they start when we pull away. Because if we stayed there, these guys are going to sink us because they're just, they keep throwing this shit. So we keep, we pull away. And I shit you not, Simba. We're watching these guys. I mean, I'm on a mountain of fucking weed, dude, on this boat. And if you could see it from the air, it would literally look like a, a mountain of marijuana bales flowing through the water with a radar on, on it like that. <laughs> because you couldn't see the boat. It was covered. I mean, literally every square inch was, you know, 10, 12, 14 feet deep in this shit. Mm. So I'm watching, even with binoculars, we're watching this boat as it's going, as we're going away from it. And they're still throwing these things off <laughs> into the water. Oh There's God. nobody there to get them, but to get, I mean, they're not going to stick around with this shit. So they're throwing it off the, and I mm. bet you, um, roughly speaking, they probably threw another 20 tons. 40,000 pounds off of this boat, you know, wow. maybe more, might've been more. I know because there wasn't anybody there to get it. Yeah. They're not going to sit there, you know, and wait for somebody because, and this wasn't uncommon in those days. A lot of times, you know, the, the mentality of who these people are, who are loading these boats and keep, keep in mind that we never owned this shit. Mm. We were what the United States government describes as um, service providers. You didn't want to own this <laughs> All we had and knew was was the ability to get this shit from anywhere in the Caribbean you wanted your weed from. We had a family connection because we were family and generational as well. Like I said earlier, I was third generation. This had been going on since the 60s, you know, so they created family connections throughout these years. And um, so it was their intention when these when these. Cubans or Colombians or whoever may be purchasing this stuff that, you know, no matter what's on their boat, they're going to get it. They're going to take it all. Well, you got to, they don't understand. You can only take so much shit on a boat. I don't give a shit unless it's the same size one that it's coming off of, which ain't happening. <laughs> they figured you'd just take it. So it wasn't uncommon for them to just put as much shit on there as, you know, and there were times when, and like I said, I'd seen boats with as much as two and 300,000 pounds on them as a kid, and it would take three, four nights to unload them. In the early days, <clears throat> excuse me, you could approach a boat like that several times, but it was always a risky thing to do. Mm. And that's potholing 101. You never approach a boat twice. But as the years progressed and went on, that never happened. You get one time and you get gone. Well, mm. this was at a time when you approach the boat one goddamn time, you get what you can get, and oh, well. You know, yeah. they would turn around and head off and you would have it all. But this time they figured, now ah, you'll just take it. Well, we didn't. And they just shit this shit was throwing. And now when it hits the water, bales become what's called here in the States square grouper. Grouper is a rather large fish and it's a delicacy. It's so, you know, in, in many restaurants and fish markets and all this kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. uh, and they get big, they get huge. They get as much as 60, 70, 200 pounds they can get those Goliath grouper. And so some of the older generations coined the term square grouper because you got a bale 
which is rectangular, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's not square. But when it hits the water, it becomes a square grouper. So whenever somebody heard square grouper on the radio, that meant there's some shit floating somewhere. We'll get to this later. It's just some funny shit. But we take this load in, we get it into shore, and, you know, obviously the shore crew takes over. They do their thing. We filled three houses with this stuff. Now, what happens is while we're filling the houses, now it has to come off of that island somehow. Now, there's only one way into Everglades City and one way out, and that's a highway. It's called 29. One road. You get out to that one road, and there's only one road that goes to Miami, US 41. So there's only one way to get from where we are to Miami. There's only one way in there and one way out. Mm. So what happens is while we're unloading and they're loading these houses at night, the shore crew, which are the drivers, because we have to drive this shit to Miami. It's got to get there somehow. And it ain't going in a pick, it ain't going in a semi truck or some stupid shit like that. This is how the entire town, even the women, start to get involved. Now, we're the offshore crew. And the, the offshore crew entails the 15, 20, 30 other little boats with two guys on them. You know, that's quite a bunch of people. It t- takes on the average, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70 people to make one job work. And that's why you can't continue to work these people. That's why, I have, you know, more and more people in the town started being involved in this shit. You know, but that being said, while we're loading these houses and I, a lot of times what the uh, vehicle owners would do would they drive out to where we're offloading and loading the house and get their vehicle loaded, whether it be a car, a truck, a van, um, you know, uh, a dump truck. We even loaded dump trucks full of shit. Um, and they would take them into town and park them right in the front yard and let them sit there all night full and call their driver because the owners of the vehicles are never the ones that drive them. They're the ones that load them, but the drivers that they call to come and take and drive this shit to a pre-designated spot in Miami, which I'll tell you about in a second, they would come and they and everybody working, all 70 people or so, however many working are, have have within their grasp of, of what's called a two-meter radio. It's like a handheld, like a walkie-talkie. And on the top, it has five-digit combination that you can choose whatever combination you wish. And at those times, it was virtually unscannable. You couldn't pick yeah. up our frequencies. So everybody had, we had like 200 of these. So made sure everybody had one. So the drivers would be, you know, they would not know where the the, the, the vehicle that they're driving got loaded. So they get in it and they're told where to go in Miami. It's one road to Miami. That's US 41. And on in in West Miami, a place called uh, Kendall, off a road off a, of a street uh, called Chrome Avenue, and we would pick out a plaza for the older generations or whoever was in charge of the of the operation at that time would choose a plaza whereby the drivers would be instructed how to get there, pull into the plaza with their van, truck, car, you know, whatever the case may be, and get out of the vehicle, go window shop for a while. And what would take place at that point would be we'd have one guy working with the Cubans that owned it on the uh, working together in this parking lot. And our guys pointing at that's our truck. That's our van. That's our car. That's, that's us. That's, that's, that's. They get out. Their guys would go get in it, drive it away to wherever their stash spot in Miami was and unload it and bring it back empty. Our guys would get back in their vehicles when they saw it come back and go make another load if there was time. So they were, we were running this shit all day. 
Now, their getaway, they had an escape valve built into that scenario because we're talking 30, 40 drivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, we're moving at any one time. We're moving 40 tons of shit off this island almost every day. <laughs> yeah. Who would suspect this little town, you know, a bum fuck nowhere Everglades, and there's 40 tons of weed coming out of here every day? You know, I mean, it's just my boggles the mind. But we were masters of hide in plain sight because mm-hmm. the only way to do this is during the day. In mm-hmm. the 99 times out of 100, these guys these gals are waving at the cops when they go, by, hey, say, how are you doing? You know, like this shit. But, you know, as remote as it is, there's maybe two highway patrol officers working during the day, one Marine patrol officer working at any time, night or day. There were only two sheriff's deputies in Everglades City, this little town we lived in, and one sheriff and Sheriff um, um, C.W. Sanders and two sheriff's deputies. Well, just so happens one of the sheriff's deputy's son was part of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> so when his dad was working, it was like the door was up, back door was open, man. It was just like, <laughs> no, no problems. But um, that all being said, <laughs> the drivers always had a, a means by which they could escape. And, and when I, and what I'm alluding to is a simple fact that they were at any one time, anywhere between 10, to 15 other people driving that are being paid $5,000 a day just to drive from Everglades to that plaza and back. All 15 Mm. drivers just, and they would be coming in staggered positions. Someone would be going, they'd pass coming back and like this. So the road was covered. And what that meant was that if any of those drivers had, you know, for whatever reason would be stopped they're instructed to wait till whoever stops you gets between your vehicle and theirs. Throw that shit thing you're driving into reverse, and now it weighs almost a ton more than it should weigh, and you smack that thing as hard as you can snag it. Fuck. And destroy the front end of it, and he's not going anywhere. But you're not going to outrun the radio, Mm. but seeing how we're out in the middle of nowhere, because nothing between Everglades and and Miami exists except Everglades. I mean, it's, you know, as far as mm. you can see, nothing. But it would take on the average 45 minutes or better for another, shit, you know, highway patrolman that's cruising back to even get to where you're at. So all you needed to do is, since he can't follow you, drive to where he can't see you and one of the spotters would pick you up. Mm. Because by that time, you've already gone, hey, man, I'm done. It's over with, you know, shit, I'm busted like that. So cream that guy, get out of his way, leave it sitting in the middle of the road and get in the spotter's car and drive away. Mm-hmm. Let him have it. Why let him have it? Simply because the person driving it would call ahead and say, I'm busted. I, or whoever was in charge of the work, would call the owner of that vehicle and say, it's over with, call the cops. He would call the law enforcement, local law enforcement, and say, you know what, I just looked out in my driveway and my, my truck's missing. You know, or my car's mm-hmm. gone. He reports it's stolen, which relieves him of any responsibility for which that thing has been involved in, and he'll get it back. Mm-hmm. You know, so same thing, same scenario existed offshore for us. You know, we're loaded. And like I said, you know, we're barely moving with this load. I mean, we're doing maybe four knots, five knots, if that. It's this big, mm-hmm. powerful boat's just, they're not built for speed, they're built for power. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a work vessel, a fishing vessel. You got a lot of, you can put a lot of weight and traps on that boat. So we would have what's called a chase boat. And I'll also, you know, we can put up a picture of my personal boat, chase boat. It's, it's typically a deep V hull vessel that's um, 
you know, capable of doing probably anywhere between 60 and 70 miles an hour before your ass can even hit the seat. You know, I mean, it's, it's designed for offshore, powerful mm. getaway. And this boat with one with one guy driving is right there next to us as we're loaded. We're coming from offshore to onshore, and he's always right there. And once the boat is loaded, my work and the and the and the and my buddy Mark, the first mate, their our work's done for now. All we can do is lay back on the back of this thing, and we're going through and we're checking it out. We're we're you know, testing it to see if it's worth taking any of it. So, you know, whether the guys in, in, you know, we can tell the guys in town, yeah, this shit, you know, you got to get some of this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Captain Billy now is in the warehouse and he's doing his job, man. He's working. He's on the radar. He's watching. He's, you know, paying attention. And we have radar for 50 miles. And if it looked like there's a, uh, you know, an, a uh, target looked like it might be coming toward us, as it gets closer, you can shrink that radar to 45 to 40, 35. 30 miles and down to 10 miles, five miles even. And if it looks like it's coming toward us, all we have to do is get on that go fast mm. boat on into the night and let him have the shit. Because mm. once again, Billy didn't own the boat. His dad did. Mm-hmm. So if something like that's looked like what's going to happen, he's get on the radio. Hey dad, <laughs> like that dad will call the cops and say, Hey, I just walked down to where my boat's supposed to be. It's gone. You know? So mm-hmm. same scenario, stolen boat, you get it back. You know, because they can't prove we were on it. But that never had that never happened. It mm. was always there as a safety valve just in case. So we never lost a load that way because we were always very diligent in, in what it was we were doing. And besides, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're in the southwest coast of Florida and there's nothing there virtually beyond mm. from Everglades City. So if you Google it and look on a map, from Everglades City down to the very tip of Florida, there's nothing. Nothing there but islands and, and Everglades. And, you know, miles and miles of beautiful white sand beaches where no one exists unless you choose to go down and throw up a campsite or whatever like that. It's just a beautiful place to live and grow up. Mm-hmm. But this is the geography in which we had to work. And this is the scenario by which all this t- took place, you know. And um, there was, um, you know, I had seen. You know, over the first couple of years of doing this, I had seen this stuff packaged in so many different ways and have it come on so many different types of vessels. And it wasn't always as easy as the captain goes offshore, he makes the call, and we approach the boat, and we pull up there. And it wasn't always easy as pulling up and the ship just come raining down on our boat. Mm-hmm. 99 times out of 100, we would pull up to this shrimp boat or yacht or whatever kind of vessel that we could board, actually, and help the crew get down below, bring the load up onto the deck, because there's mm-hmm. only, you know, at, at, their crews aren't very large either. You know, there may be two, three guys on there, plus the captain, and the captains have to maintain the vessel's positioning, and the crews do the work. So we would help their crew put stuff on the deck from their hull. Once it's on the deck, we would jump down onto our boats, and now they can throw the stuff over, and we can start loading. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always that easy you know, to get it loaded and, and pull away. There had been times even like, you know, like I said, when we were unloading these vessels in the earlier days, when they were had like 100,000 pounds or better, two, 300,000 of them, um, the hatches on these, uh, on the, on the, on the, uh, the, the, on the weather deck of these vessels were huge. And they were, they're, they're used, they're designed to be used at the dock with a crane and a, in a, you know, in a net and lifting the cargo out and stuff like that. But the cranes exist on the docks. They don't exist on the boat. So what we mm-hmm. had to do was, because it's such a deep hole, in a, you know, 
we would put the bales in a pyramid, stack them up, and we'd have guys standing at different levels of this pyramid. We'd bucket brigade this shit and hand it to this guy. He'd hand it to that guy. And then the guy would push it up where the guys on the deck could actually grab it and pull it out. Mm. Like this. I mean, yeah. just insane, you know, but we were taking so much shit out of Colombia in those days and even Jamaica. I mean, anywhere in the Caribbean that you wanted weed from, if it'd be, if it'd be Jamaica, if it'd be Venezuela, it'd be Colombia, it'd be Central America, um, anything but in Mexico, we'd never, nobody wanted that crap, you know, coming out of Mexico at that time, they wanted the, you know, the specialized Belize was a great place. And prior to, prior to that was, was uh, British Honduras and Honduras mm -hmm. right next to, right next door to it. And, um, you know, Costa Rica, you know, Central American countries had a lot of decent product coming out of it and a, and a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you wanted your stuff from, we had a family connection. Because like I said, not only were we family and generational, you know, us kids learning from the dads and uncles and so on and that sort of thing, where we were going throughout the rim of the Caribbean were family and generational as well. Mm -hmm. So, um as we spoke earlier and people, you know, and a lot of people are curious about, you know, you know, violence and, you know, that sort of thing, you know, because it's the, you know, illegal drug trade or whatever, mm -hmm. however you choose why that. Well, I have to tell you in all honestly that, you know, when you're working mm -hmm. at that level, the level at which we were working and, you know, we're talking about, um, I had written a story in one of the chapters of my books where, where our crews worked 28 nights in a row. And I did a rough calculation to the tune of 1.6 million pounds went through that little island area in 28 nights. Mm. <laughs> and um, people have a hard time understanding, you know, how this business can be done without, you know, and, and they have, you know, when you talk about dealing with Cubans in Miami and, and working in like that, they have this vision of, you know, dimly lit back rooms with, a, you know, shadowy figures standing against the walls and guns on the table and, you know, and smoky and, you know, like, well, nothing could be further from the truth, man. <laughs> you know, that's all TV, Hollywood made up kind of bullshit, you know, and maybe it did happen, you know, in other places once or twice or shit like that, but never once did it happen like that with us. When I started even making deals, my deals were made and I've made hundred million dollar deals in downtown Miami, standing on a street corner in front of a Cuban cafe, dunking Cuban bread into Cuban coffee. <laughs> and a handshake. <laughs> That's just how it was mm. done. You know, you give me the money and, you know, and particularly the violence aspect of it that, we're, that we want to talk about. And there being no violence at that level, simply because, and it's a matter of mathematics, if I can buy, and, and, and this was possible, and this is how, how it actually happened, I could go to anywhere in the Caribbean, whether it be Jamaica, South America, Central America, I could buy per pound, anything you wanted for $10 a pound, 10 US dollars a pound. By the time whatever I pay $10 for reaches, crosses that international waters line at 30 miles into the United States territory, it jumps from $10 a pound to anywhere from 500 to $750 a pound. So I could quite literally take up this say 30, $300,000 of some, you know, cocaine cowboys money because they were running rampant in cocaine in Miami. It was destroying our South of South Florida for sure. And everybody had money to, to burn and even, even $300,000, even to us and a couple of us guys, that's a weekends, you know, long weekend of, of bar money, you know, 
in Miami yeah. 300 grand just to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, because we have more. But I could take $300,000 to South America and buy 30,000 pounds of Colombian redbud. And that's what people were, you know, basically craving at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can take $300,000 of some cocaine cowboy's money and in the voyage between South America and South Florida at that time, with you know, when you're making your way through the, the lower Caribbean and then, and then through the what we call the Yucatan Pass, the, the gap into the Gulf of Mexico, typical voyage, barring any other weather patterns, eight days. So if I could take your $300,000 in eight days, turn it into $15 million at the least, dude, you're not shooting at me. <laughs> Yeah. It can't get me money fast enough to go back, you know, <laughs> because if you take that math and go and take that math and go just a little bit further with it, what you get is this. You take $15 million minus 5 million that for a job that size is about what I would, what would cost for you, for me to do that. $175 a pound is what I charge for whatever you want. You pay me $175 a pound. Well, $5 million of that 15 is mine. So you made $10 million off of $375,000 in eight days. What that means, quite simply, is you take that original $300,000 and divide it back into $9,700,000. You want to take that original investment out. Even though they got it back, this is easier math to do. $300,000 divided by $9,700,000, and you get the number 32. And what that number 32 represents is the number of chances I have to get your next load to you before you've lost money. So quite simply, I could lose 31 of those 32 loads, but all I have to do is get that last 30-second load to you. You've still made money. You haven't mm-hmm. lost money yet. That's the ridiculousness of the, of the mathematics and the cost and the price of, of doing business in those days. That's mm-hmm. why when people go violence, why aren't you scared of going in there? Well, hell no. They loved us because we were paying them, you know, outrageous amounts of money for a plant that just grows, you know, stupidly wild about everywhere in Colombia, Northern Colombia in those days. You know, they're happy, you know. I'm making $175 a pound off of you just for moving your shit. And I don't have to sell it. I don't have to when we never didn't want to fuck with it. We never wanted to own it. We never wanted to sell it. Be that. Now you're involving way too many people. Mm-hmm. That being said, don't confuse that with the loyalty and the trust and the understanding that took place between half of a town's population, 250 plus people and kept a secret for nearly 40 years. Nobody had a clue. I mean, that in itself is is wildly amazing mm-hmm. and cannot be in any way contrasted toward, you know, the method by which I said we didn't want to own it or sell it because you're involving too many people. Well, mm-hmm. you're involving too many people in different places of the country and people you don't know. We were all family. Everybody knew everybody in the town knew everybody. The other half that wasn't involved in it knew everybody was doing it. I mean, they're not stupid. But who's going to tell on your neighbor? <laughs> you know, even the sheriff himself, C.W. Tanders, he had he wasn't a stupid man. He knows what's going on because every now and then he'd get a little bit here or there, somebody would fuck up or something like that. I mean, you know, of course, we never got away. Everybody didn't get away scot free. Some guys got busted in a van load or some shit like that. But you know, minor stuff. But in those days, it was more of a slap on the wrist. You know, you got you get caught with a van load of this shit or even on a boatload of it. You know, you might do. The you know federal government might give you eighteen months in prison, or mm-hmm. you know fourteen months in prison of which you would do maybe eight or nine, 
because of the good game time and all that kind of stuff there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bosses and the people running the show at that time would literally just, you know, get the family fed, get the, you know, the lights on and the, you know, rent paid if there was rent or mortgage or whatever like that. And when you got out of prison and come home, you just go right back to work again, <laughs> you know, yeah. just, that was just that stupid. But, um, there were a lot of things involved and a lot of moving in mechanical pieces, which is what made this operation, after all, described by the government as one of the most sophisticated smuggling operations ever discovered here in North America, mm -hmm. um, simply because, you know, um, being family and generational and being having been kept this secret for all these years, you know, it was, was hard for people to even imagine, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going to find when I'm what I'm saying, hard to imagine, but... All I can do, quite simply, is impart to you how I grew up in this industry and what I actually saw and what I viewed as a, as a, as a kid growing up. And since having written the book, and then even during the writing of the book, I wasn't, I, I didn't self-publish. I have a literary agent, which was a difficult process by which to get. And I was published by um, St. Martin's Press, which is, you know, originally they're mm -hmm. from London, mm -hmm. uh, from St. Martin. And... Um, when I was considered um, by St. Martin's Press uh, as being one of their authors, I got on the phone with their publisher, Susan Robinson. I was on with their uh, senior executive editor, their executive of sales, executive of paperbacks, and there was another executive of some kind of shit in there. Well, <laughs> my agent at Foundry Literary Media was freaking out because he'd never had the publisher on fucking, you know, on a call. You know, he says, Don't get don't get freaked out. I said, dude. Get him on the phone. I got this, man. You know? So here we are on the phone. And the only thing that the publisher, I was asked questions, you know, from the other guys and shit like that, you know, but the only question that the, the publisher herself, Susan Robbins, asked me was in regards to validation. Mm -hmm. She says, because, this, you know, the stories that you talk about, the sheer volume and the amounts of money that you talk about are so outrageous. She said, do you have... Um, validation can you validate this and i said well let me see uh who would you like to speak to i can put you in touch with the fbi secret service cia fdle customs you know i mean um the local uh, naples police sheriff's trident task force any of these people you want i can get them on the phone for you right now if you'd like she goes perfect <laughs> that's all she said because quite simply i wouldn't believe this myself had i not gone out and not lived through it you know, and 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 your subscribers and your viewers and anybody that may be watching this or passing it along, please don't take my word for this shit. Look it up. Mm -hmm. It's online. It's on the internet. There's no secret to this shit and how it took place and where it took place and it's your volume in which it took place. Mm -hmm. The four guys that we grew up with, the four fathers whose kids I grew up with, the Daniels brothers, just to give you a for instance, um, another bit of scope or another point of view, if you will, to put things in perspective. Now, when they had finally gotten arrested, now the United States government instituted two operations, federal operations in the 80s, called Operation Everglades 1 and Operation Everglades 2. Both operations involved over 250 federal agents from every branch of law enforcement across North America. And the first time they came down there to start affecting arrests for the smuggling you know, that was going on um, that they had finally got, you know, in tune to. Once they did away with the cute cocaine cowboys in Miami, they, they kind of turned their sights on us and said, well, let's check this out over here. So cocaine cowboys pretty much screwed us in Miami. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let's put it that way. 
Um, but um, the intelligence was such at that time by the older generations, the first and second generations, that they had judges and congressmen and senators and that people on their payroll. So they knew this operation was coming two weeks before it happened. Mm-hmm. So when they roll on into that little island and shut things down, there could, I mean, it was a pitiful, I mean, it was a joke, actually. It was mm. quite the failure, you know, it was quite the failure because everybody took off. Nobody was around, you know? Mm-hmm. So almost a year to the day, here they come with what they call Operation Everglades 2. So now their people are telling them, their senators and judges are telling them, look, they're not going to stop, man. You know, they're going to continue this process. So I think it's time. So what the older generations did in, in 1984 was just sit back on their front porch at two o'clock in the morning and smoke a cigarette to wait for the show to start, you know, and here they come, another 250 agents, and they came out swarming on that island. Not only did that, this time there were more reporters that showed up to report what was going on, and there were be there were people being arrested. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually made there was a very current and a very popular magazine, still is Life magazine here in mm. the United States. And um, one of the reporting agencies was Life magazine, and they put out a. I'll, I'll send it to you. Remind me, I, I've got a bunch of a list of things that I'll send to you. Um, it was a uh, unprecedented article, as it, as it was 18 pages in length, and it took up an entire centerfold picture within the magazine. It was an overview of the uh, 10,000 islands, and it shows you this labyrinth of islands, this beautiful, wonderful labyrinth that Mother Nature saw fit to build right in our backyard. <laughs> and the headline across the top said, Trouble in Everglades City. And the subtitle underneath, now they got the population a little screwed up. They said there was 600 people. But what they said was, a small southwest Florida town tarred with drug smuggling, and most of its 600 residents said, so what? <laughs> <laughs> and then it went on to tell the story about, you know, I mean, the whole crowd that was going on. So um, if you doubt anything that I say, you know, God bless you. That's cool. I don't care. But look it up. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to comment and make a, make a response, you know, please do a little bit of homework before you you trash me, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm just simply, you know, I'm a 25, I'm that 25 year old kid. Obviously, I'm in a 65 year old rapper. And, you know, it just came from here and went right onto the pages of that book, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a there's so, so, so much to this story. And, and a lot of it's, you know, amongst the joviality and the way in which I tell the story, because you're getting Tim, you're getting me, you know, fuck it. You're getting the real guy. Mm-hmm. I wrote every word that you read. And once you've heard my voice, and if you read that book now, you'll hear my voice come through the pages. And all I can do is honestly impart to you what I learned and what I lived at, uh, as a kid and how I how it was this is big a surprise to me is when i when i first started as it is it is to you hearing this obviously mm. but you know um like i said along with the joviality in which i like to tell my stories it doesn't ha- doesn't belie the seriousness of what it was we were doing mm-hmm. i mean we were risking our asses every i mean when i'm short on a boat man there's no doubt about that but you can't carry that attitude with you if you carry mm-hmm. an attitude along with you like that eventually you're going to start you know doing this kind of shit and you're going to fuck up you know, yeah. so never once did we ever get, was I scared? People ask me, were you scared of doing that shit, man, like that? So, no, you know, because we were, first of all, kids, and the adults were in control. 
Mm-hmm. We were the crewmen on all these boats that were doing this bust-ass, ball-ass fucking work. We were the ones sent offshore to handle the bales and move these 800 or 1,000-pound motherfuckers two and sometimes three times a night. You think the adults are doing this shit? <laughs> Hell no, man. They're going, hey, 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 hey. Everybody in town was working, and that's the reason why. Mm. But like I said, the seriousness, and it should not, it, it should, you know, the joviality should not belie that seriousness. But, you know, it's just me because I'm that guy, you know, and I'm going to tell you just exactly how the fuck it happened, you know. And when we talked earlier about, no, I have to tell you this is a rather funny story um, about the, the coinage of the term square grouper. And when you throw a bale or you lose a bale, and that happened a lot, you know, and it didn't happen because, you know, uh, on purpose, a lot of times it happened and, you know, these bales would wash up on the beaches here in Southwest Florida. People would be, you know, walking along, shelling and shit, and all of a sudden there's a bale of weed laying there on the beach, you know, and it happened quite frequently in that way simply because we were loading these boats with so much shit (laughs) that, you know, if there was any kind of swell on the water, you know, as the boat's going through the water, it's doing this. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, one might, you know, roll and go off the edge. You know, who the fuck knows? And then eventually, it'd wind up on shore. You know, that was what square grouper was. Mm-hmm. Not only with that, you know, and like I said earlier, and I will always, and I'll always insist on this in people understanding that we weren't the only pot haulers around, dude. There was pot haulers all over the fucking place, even on the West Coast. You know, and God bless their asses, but we were the only ones that were able to integrate it into a way of life spanning that period Mm. of time and and lasting through three generations. And there were other potholers, like I said, some of them times they'd get spooked or something would happen and they would, you know, the the thing was to just throw that shit off the boat. You know, maybe your contacts didn't get out there to you early enough to get it off of you in time before the sun come up or whatever the case may be. But, you know, mm-hmm. they'll throw that shit right there on shore, we'll throw it right off the boat, get rid of it and get away from it as fast as you can. Cause the fucking sun's going to come up, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not messing around. So and that happened from time to time, but one time in particular where we had taken some time off, you know, a couple of days off from hauling pot and unloading boats and shit like that. So we're actually, you know, and these boats that we're working actually have to work. You know, you can't justify, you know, filling a boat with fuel and bait and paying a crew if your boat's not living, you know, is is not bringing catch in. Mm-hmm. So we would do stone crabbing by day a lot of times and haul pot at night because the boat had to continue to work. Well, on our off days, we're often, you know, we're in the bunk sleeping and, you know, we're on our way to the, you know, to the fishing ground that we're going to that morning. And and um, this particular time, um, Captain Billy's daddy, Hubert, was running the boat. And uh, I remember him, the boats, I'm sleeping, the boats, he pulls the throttle back on the boat, he turns around and he's kicking my bunk. I'm in the bottom bunk, Mark's in the top bunk, and he's kicking the bunk with his foot. He's going, there's bales out there, boys. The minute we heard that, we sat up, <laughs> put our fishing boots on. And all we're dressed for every day is we're dressed in cutoff jeans and we've got on a pair of socks and fishing boots, crab boots. That's all we wear. That's our um, that's our work uniform. Mm-hmm. We ran out on deck, and the sun is just coming up on the water, as slick, calm as glass, dude. And as far as you could see, there was shit floating <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it, it was like it had just happened recently because a lot of them were floating rather high out of the water, you know. 
the more the mm -hmm. stuff sits and is depending on how well it's packaged depends on how much salt water intrusion it'll get and it'll eventually it'll float slower and lower in the water the more saturated it gets mm -hmm. but we had gotten there probably not too much longer after it had gotten thrown overboard because we actually had the opportunity to pick i mean our boats were plowing through them. that's how many of them there is wow. and our we were actually able to just, you know, weave in and around and pick up the ones that were floating really high out of the water because we knew they had the less saltwater intrusion than any of the rest of them. So we had to pick up the litter. We were the first ones there. And, you know, we're throwing this shit. I mean, Mark's grabbing, I'm grabbing, he's throwing, we're throwing, and we're not even counting how many of these fucking things are picking up, right? So while we're doing that, Hubert's on the phone or on the radio, actually, on a sideband calling back to the the hill we call it, it's where we docked the boat and keep our traps. We call that the hill. And Billy lived right there, Cat um, um Hubert's uh, son, Captain Billy. Mm -hmm. And he's calling for him to bring an, uh, another boat out to get this shit from us and you know take it into the woods so we can you know get out of here. So it wasn't you know we weren't only a s several miles down shore when we started running into this shit. So it didn't mm -hmm. take Billy long to get out there. But while we're waiting for him to come out. Hubert's done with a call. He sticks his head out of the wheelhouse and he looks at the deck and he goes, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking much, he says. Throw some of that shit back in the water. I mean, that, I we had over 200 pieces by that time stacked up there on the boat, right? I mean, in a big pile. So we start shocking them back into the water. And the reason that was, was because the boat Billy was coming out to get, you know, the stuff from us and, can only take so much. I mean, we can't mm -hmm. overload that fucking thing. So I think we threw all back. We threw back all the hundred. And keep in mind that each one of these things is worth anywhere between twenty-five thousand and seven twenty-seven thousand U.S. dollars a piece. These bales. We got a hundred of them. Do the math. Mm -hmm. And that twenty-five thousand a piece. That's two point five million. For hundred pieces, we want hundred pieces. If it's twenty-seven thousand each, that's two point seven million dollars we just found on the way to work that day. My cut after we took it, Billy took it, put it into the woods. We stashed it. He made a call. It was sold two nights later. It was gone. That day of work, I made six hundred forty-one thousand dollars on the way to work that day. <laughs> That was my cut. It, we, we've cut it four ways. Mm -hmm. Captain Billy and Captain, Captain Herbert, Hubert, and Mark and I mm -hmm. each got 641000 bucks just on our way to work one day. So once Billy took this shit from us, we got the fuck out of there and away from that shit, man. And we're headed down to where our traps were, and we start our day's work. You know, we're working, we're pulling, and we get it. And it's about, here it comes about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden we've seen these little boats coming up to us. <laughs> you know, guys from town on I'm like, where's this yelling? Where's this shit at? And you know, like, it's three miles, four miles that way. <laughs> you, know? you better hurry up and get out there. It's been there for a while, you know, because somebody somewhere, you know, once you find, like I said earlier, once, you know, somebody finds shit like this, they get on the radio, square group or shit. <laughs> anybody in town with a radio in a boat hears that they're out there man they're looking for this shit it's just free money i mean it's free yeah. shit once somebody throws it into the water it belongs to whoever can fucking pick it up that's that's just how it goes we wound up picking up a hundred of them we could have got way more than that but we couldn't take i mean we didn't want to risk sticking around we had i mean 
$641,000, I think, was a bad day's pay. <laughs> but that's just, you know, that's just how it was when I was a kid growing up. I mean, these ridiculous amounts and 30 ton, 40 ton, 50 ton, 60 ton, that's all I knew. That's all any of us knew. So we didn't question it. We didn't think anything of it. So when I start writing this book, and there were, you know, the guys that I grew up with and shit, you know, they're wondering, they're wondering who in the hell would want to hear about that? You know? <laughs> and I was always the guy because I took over the fucking shit eventually. I was always the one able to think outside the box a little bit. And I said, look, you'd be surprised who'd want to hear about this mm-hmm. shit, man. Considering what we had to go through and all this, uh, you know, you know, after having ultimately it all came to an end, you mm-hmm. know, um, with what they call Operation Peacemaker. I mean, this is almost 10 years down the road now I've been doing this. But I, 19, late 1984, I had to, I was fortunate enough, if you, if you prefer, um, to be in a position to all of a sudden be able to make the call, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get the crew working again, to get the connections together to make the crew work. And the reason that was made possible was simply just a matter of sheer happenstance almost a year prior now i told you the scenario by which we get it to miami so um that's done we developed what the law enforcement now describes here in this you know in the states as a dead drop that means you drop the vehicle you get out of it and you walk away from it that's a dead drop mm-hmm. and now um during that 28 night run that i alluded to earlier one of the nights we had worked, we decided we, we brought in 55 tons, 110,000 pounds in a single night, just to see if we could do it. Because by that time, it wasn't, it wasn't about the money. <laughs> you know, I, I got to, you know, I'll tell you about that too. But um, it was just about, you know, seeing how much we could get away with. We got 55 tons one night, but I can distinctly remember, you know, we worked three days in a row and we knew we'd take off. Then we worked some days. Well, during this off period, after this 55 tons, well, the next day, I was off. And I just got up and I wound up walking over to one of the five houses that we had stuffed full of shit, man. I mean, at one point on the island, every house that was on the water on the island had shit in it. That's how much stuff we were moving. And I'm th- three days prior to my working that 55, t- that three days, and I was part of that 55-ton job, one of the oldest uh, of the four brothers, um, Randall, or was Daryl, actually. I think it was Daryl again, the guy that was flying a fucking airplane. <laughs> he uh, he sees me. I walk over to the house one day to see how things were going, you know, and shit, having worked that night, you know, and um, that 55 tons. And he said, um, he pointed to uh, three days prior to that, let me go back, three days prior to us working that job, including that 55 tons. He gets me and my buddy Jimmy uh, pulls us aside and hands us a wrecking bar and a, and, a, and a chainsaw. And he points over to this brand new motorhome, Winnebago motorhome that had 125 miles on it. Brand new. Most of those miles were, were driving it from where they bought it to the Everglades. That's what, you know, <laughs> that's how new it was. I want you and Jimmy to go inside that thing and strip every goddamn, take the sink, take the bathroom, take the walls, take the you know everything you can strip out of there from the windows down leave the cabinets and the curtains and everything else alone but from the windows down gut that bitch take it out of there take the plumbing out of there, take everything we even took the captain's chairs and the, the passenger chair we unbolted them threw them out the fucking door and what they wound up doing was taking airbags and putting them in the springs in the suspension and and inflating those airbags so 
when they put nearly 12,000 pounds, almost six tons of weed in this motorhome, it wouldn't spark mm-hmm. the highway with driving it down the road, right? Those bags in the springs would tighten up and it wouldn't allow that thing to squat. So you'd never know it was loaded like it was. Well, mm-hmm. we worked this 55 tons and they decided they're going to load this motorhome with this shit. So I, like a dumbass, I just, you know, I got a day off. So I walk over and I see the shore crews loading cars and they're, they kick the bumper when they're loaded and they take off because nobody's touching these vehicles. So nobody wants mm-hmm. to put fingerprints on them. So Daryl looks at me and goes, Timmy, come here. And I kind of rolled my eyes and, I, and my inner monologue, I'm going, oh, fuck, you know, and, and, um, he says, um, I need you to do me a favor, if you would, please. He said, I need somebody that I can trust. He said, I'd like you, if you would. He says, you can take that Winnebago and drive it over to Miami for me. He said, because quite simply, it cannot go to the plaza where everybody else is going because, you know, damn, you get within 40 feet of this thing, you can smell it, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, it has to go directly to the stash house. It has to go directly to the spot where all these, you know, all these other loads are being taken from, from the plaza. No one had ever been there. And mm. the reason for that was because of the dead drop. And because the guys that were bringing it to Miami to the plaza didn't know where it got loaded. So they could, even if it got busted, they couldn't tell them where it came from. And mm. the guys in Miami didn't know where it was coming from Everglades. And guys in Everglades didn't know where it was going in Miami. So there was a buffer that was our buffer point, you know, mm. as it were. Well, no one over the years particularly the crew, except for the adults. And there was only like five or five or so of them that were putting these deals together. They even knew any of the Cuban counterparts that actually owned the stuff on the other side in Miami. We never met them as kids. Nobody ever knew these people. Nobody mm-hmm. ever knew where it was going, but I got chosen to drive this thing straight to this place where nobody had ever been except for the adults. Uh, I said, okay. He said, well, I'll give you $35,000 just to drive it. And it was only a one-way trip. I didn't have to drive anything back. I drove money back. Mm. And I said, hey, okay, only because of who was asking me to do this did I do it. So here I am. I climb up into this thing. And we literally, because we took the seats out, we had to pull a bale out so you could, somebody could sit down. I could sit down there in between them and drive this damn thing. <laughs> no seats in the thing. Yeah. So here I go, two-hour drive across Miami, and they're ju- they're telling me on the radio, how to, you know, where to turn. I get off Chrome Avenue, where to turn. I'm going through this orange grove, and here, out of nowhere, pops out this, I shit you not, this medieval castle-looking house. It even had the spires. I mean, it looked like old English shit, dude. I mean, that's what it looked like. It was, it was so out of place, and it was built by some ignorant cocaine cowboy. I obviously <laughs> had more money than he had brains, right? So I pull this winnebago in there and i stopped next to the house and they immediately start grabbing it and taking it you know to a cellar under the home and i was told to stay there the whole day till the loads stopped coming that day and they would give me a car with money in it to drive back for them that's where you needed this trust thing to happen mm-hmm. so i stayed there all day i did that you know blah 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 long story short operation everglades one and two come along after that and next thing you know these guys are gone the brothers and everybody that was working us kids or everybody else for that matter in Southwest Florida almost, you know, had gone, we're going to prison and the work stopped. Mm-hmm. So a month or so goes by and, you know, I've got a house, I got several houses and I'm living in a little town just, you know, East of here called Golden Gate. And I get the, I get a knock on my door one afternoon and I opened up and there's this guy, George Jorge. 
I met him at this house I was at. He goes, Timmy, because <laughs> we got to know each other so well. I mean, everybody winds up calling me Timmy, you know. So he's like, Timmy, he says, you know, he says, I found you. He said, you know, it took us, it, it took them a month to find me because all they knew was Timmy and this mug. Mm-hmm. And Everglades and Naples isn't all that big a place. So it took them a month. They said they're looking around and asking in this and that. You know, this guy, Timmy, you know, from Everglades. And, and they found out where I lived. And they knocked on my door. And he had, the first thing he says to me before he greeted me was, he goes, Timmy, he says, we got work to do. It's backing up. He says, can you do this? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, fuck yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I knew how to do it from A to Z. From how to get it offshore to get it onshore to get it to Miami. I knew that whole scenario. Mm-hmm. And I could reverse engineer the cost because I having had worked each position over the, the the almost decade that I had done that, or you know, at that time the six years that I had done this, you know, I knew what each person was getting paid because at different levels, you know, you're of a hierarchy within this sophisticated operation are different levels of pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the highest of the paying level is like I began as a, when I began. You're going offshore to unload the vessel and bring that entire load in. I'm paid anywhere from fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a night to do this because at that point in time, there's only three people in charge of the whole load for about six or seven hours. Three people in charge of that load, so we're getting to pay we're getting our we're risking our ass out on the water for this the boats that come to get it from us they're 30 grand a piece so out of that 30 grand the captain will pay his guy that he's got on the boat with him now you have to pay the guy in the house the guy that owns the house that you're putting the shit into then you have to pay the drivers or the the the, the drivers of the vehicles that are taking the shit to miami are anywhere from 30 to, to thirty five thousand dollars a piece too and there's you know 40 50 of them so I could reverse engineer all the costs and all the in the bail handlers, they're five grand a night, they're ten grand a night, or the mm-hmm. spotters, they're five grand a day. You know, I could reverse engineer and put this all together, but I did not know where to go. Who do I talk to? How much do I spend? How much do I charge? You know, all of this was known only by the older generation. So by that time, some of the guys that were busted during that first operation wasn't successful, but they did round up some people. So some of the older generations, I had their ear. And I said, look, explain to me, tell me. And that's how I learned $175 a pound. Then I was introduced to a to a connection in Jamaica. I was introduced to who I call in my book, The Boss, who I bought millions upon millions of pounds of Colombian marijuana from in Colombia. Um, I had connections in Central America, in Panama, all around the Caribbean and where they were inherited to me by these older generations that wanted to see the work continue. So not only did I put the Everglades guys back to work, you know, there's the next island up, which is Goodland. Then the next island up, island town next up is north is is Marco Island. And then there's Naples. And then an island north of Naples is Pine Island. I ultimately wound up working five crews Anywhere from 50 to 70 people on each crew. And we were just, I mean, I started off by the first time I went to Columbia. Um, and this story's in the book, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny story. Um, but um, I wound up doing 32,000 pounds as a test run. I got that in, no problem. Got to Miami, you know, next thing you know, here we go. Now, you know, the work's picking up. Now, because of... Um, and this is where you might want to bring me back to this, bring me back to 
um, you know, my my first trip to to Colombia, um, and meeting and meeting the boss and and what I went through with that. Now, um, in the earlier years, um, the the evolution of the what a, what a bale of pot looks like is what I'm going to describe to you. In the earlier years, when I first began, they were coming to us. They weren't compressed like a like a bale of pot is. You know, if you, you know, and I'll and we'll put up a picture of um of what they look like. Um, oddly rectangular, about 80 pounds a piece, all uniformed, all the same size, all the same weight. That didn't occur in the earlier days. In the earlier days, they were more like stuffed with their foot or hand compressed with a crank and then the plastic bag duct taped shut, stuffed in a burlap bag, and that was stitched shut. So we were getting on like 40 pounds, 60 pounds, 100 pounds. I mean, they were coming all different sizes and shapes, no rhyme or reason, and because they weren't compressed, who knows how many times before we got them, they've been handled. So some of them got holes in them, you know, mm. and there's seedy shit and shakes coming everywhere. You know, it's, you know, it was a mess. It was a mess to the point where when we brought loads in and got them off onto the little LaBrotes and they were taking them into the shore, into the house or wherever they were taking them that I wasn't privy to at that time, we would have to go offshore, like I said, and clean our boat. Well, damn, we're taking hours and cracks and crevices to get every seed off the deck of this and everything off the deck of this boat because if something should by chance happen to become suspect and they start running around out there looking and boarding and looking on boats and they find one seat on your boat your ass is done you know mm. so this and this shit was coming to us nasty like this and what ultimately wind up we were doing was captain billy would take in a couple rolls of, of plastic this queen plastic, we would line the deck of our boat all the way from the stern up to the wheelhouse and over over the edges and duct tape it up against it, and make a bowl, literally a bowl out of the deck of the boat. Come on, I'm gonna throw that shit on there, you know, and and then we get it off our boat and literally go offshore and just kind of pull it all up into a bunch on the top, wrap a chain around it and an anchor and throw it overboard. <laughs> boat clean. And that ended to having to literally, we were quite literally sweeping it into piles on the deck, taking our ice shovel and <sighs> scooping it up and throwing it overboard. Mm. I can buy, I can guarantee you, I've dumped more shake and more shit and more bud out of my boots than any 20 men can smoke in their lifetime. <laughs> That's how nasty <laughs> You know, but then later yeah. on came you know, comes in the early 80s, the advent of the commercial and household trash compactor. And one of the older generations went, boop, light went on. They said, okay, here's what you need to do. So they took about four of these compactors and a generator down there to the jungle and said, here, here you go. That was how the evolution of the bale changed from what it used to be, what we called pillow bales, into the compressed rectangular shaped bales that just that, that are typically seen on the television or the news or whatever now. Our older generations were responsible for that having done that, having taken that that course. So by having doing that, what they what they did was they made it easier. They made it cleaner. Now the loads are more compact. Now the molds are heavier because you can put more off, you can stack more. You know, so the advent of the compressed bale became you know, the increase in volume and what it was we were doing, you know, in the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. Not only that, they were picking it up in Jamaica and Central America, that same process, and it just propagated into Mexico. And when they talk about Mexican brick weed, brick mm -hmm. is what they're talking about. That 
that compressed veil that were that that our older generations were responsible for creating. Mm-hmm. So back to Colombia, these guys wanted me when I did my first job for Carlito and Leo. These two guys that I name in my book were my my Cuban connection. I didn't want to know anybody else in Miami. Don't introduce me to anybody. Don't I don't want to know anybody. You got somebody that wants shit from wherever the Caribbean they want their shit from. I can get it for them, but I'm going through you. You mm-hmm. give me the money. I'll go get the shit. I'll bring it and give it to you. You take it from there. You pay me. Nobody else is, knows me. Nobody else knows me, wants to know me. I don't give a fuck who they are. Mm-hmm. So this is how we work. And um, as a result of that, it, it wound up working rather well And in the fact that after that first trip to Colombia, which was um, not too long after Carlito and Leo, about six months after Carlito and Leo and I started working together, that we wound up pitching, pitching in together and buying at that time for, for just under a million dollars a corporate Learjet that had, um, it was only a couple of years old, but it was just under a million bucks. And I could take this plane and literally fly early in the morning it's a five-hour flight from South Florida to Columbia, where I needed to go, mm-hmm. and I could spend literally spend the day there, buying and and purchasing and looking at what it was I came to look at, and then fly out that afternoon and be, and be back in the United States and back sitting across from my girlfriend at the bar by nine o'clock that evening, and her never knowing I had left the country. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those things, but. Um, the first time I'd met the boss, man, I didn't, I didn't meet him that day. I took my buddy, uh, Rudy with me, he was a Cuban kid and, uh, to translate because the boss didn't speak a lick of fucking English. Now, when you talk about family and generational, the guy that I went there to meet was the father of the first generation that our generations worked with. Mm-hmm. He inherited this, this plantation and all these, all these growers throughout Northern Colombia from Santa Marta to Cartagena which included the Barquilla Peninsula and Barquilla City, a lot of different growers within those areas were all growing for him. That's why there was millions of pounds available, I mean, to whoever could come and get it, you know, mm-hmm. and we were coming and getting it. <laughs> so um, I, fly, I fly down there and um, the jet lands on this airstrip, which is just carved out of the jungle. It's, an, you know, it's... Um, a clay, dry clay airstrip, very well taken care of. This jet landed landed pretty easily on this little thing. So we're flying out over this with sea of green, over mm. this jungle, literal literal jungle. And off in the distance, you see this little speck of nothing, of white, of mm. bare ground. And that's where that jet's going to land, right there. So we fly past this guy's house, his mansion on the side of the hill, which he inherited from his father. And we land and we go to the house and this and that. And we go to an apartment and we're set up in the back, you know, and we have dinner like that. So we can meet the boss, the boss man the next morning. He comes walking into the room and we're with his, we're with his partner, Rico. And Rico spoke English. So, you know, the translations were okay. Everybody was cool with what was being said. And um, so we're standing there having a, I'm having a um, glass of orange juice or whatever. And then in, in comes the boss man. And he's like, five, six, five, seven, you know, kind of ro- robust, a little bit rotund, black hair, of course, pulled back into a ponytail <laughs> and shit. He had a um, 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 camo, camouflage fatigue pants on with uh, combat boots 
and a belted sidearm and a pistol and a t-shirt. And on his t-shirt was like this. It had a smiley face. And underneath the smiley face, it said, have a nice day in Spanish. And mm. Rudy's reading it to me. So he walks past us. He walks over to the bar to get himself a drink, um, the breakfast bar to get himself a drink. And on the back of the shirt was that same smiley face with its X's in its eyes and a smoking bullet hole in his head. And underneath <laughs> it said, or else. That immediately cracked me up. And right away, I kind of had a, a sense of the guy that I was dealing with because he, mm. he was a funny guy. You know, I mean, he was just as, as jolly as could be. He didn't have a care in the fucking world, of course. I mean, why would you at that time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and this is back at a time when there really were cartels mm. in the fucking show. You know, of course, the Medellin cartel. And I only know that story, you know, what happened to those people and the uh, Aguileo brothers who were the Cali cartel only because the guy I was dealing with was their cousin. So we never had any direct cartel, you know, connection because that time. Um, we were working cousin, but nevertheless, he owned the region. He had, you know, every grower that he could get in that region working with him. And when I went down there that next morning, as, as the, you know, we got introduced to the boss and he, he just uh, turned around and said, let's go see what you're here to see. And he go fast paced to the front door, opens the door. And before he steps out, he reaches over and grabs an AK 47. That's hanging mm -hmm. on where you would hang your coats, hanging mm -hmm. on the wall. He grabs that and goes, let's go. His buddy Rico walks out, he grabs an AK, Rudy, my buddy, grabs an AK, and I swear to God, the first and only time I ever handled a gun during this entire scenario that, that we're, we're talking about, did I, even did I ever see a gun? The mm -hmm. only time I ever picked one up and handed, held one is because all, everybody grabbed one, I grabbed one too. <laughs> Walked out the door and got in Bronco, and we must we drove, drove about five minutes through the jungle. And as soon as Rico, the guy out front next to the boss man, opened his door, that smell of of mm. weed and burlap smacked me right in the face, man. I was no, I mean, I know that smell because like I was born with it, you know. And I left my my gun in the car. I mean, the, the, the Bronco because I'm gonna like, carry this fucking thing around. You know, there's enough. Everybody coming up here, right? So. I'm pushing these, you know, these big old leathery leaves out of my way, and all of a sudden, I open it opens up, and I'm staring at what looks like an Incan ruin. There's bales of shit stacked, twelve feet high if it's a foot. They're about twenty feet wide, and they go about fifty, sixty feet into the jungle. There's one stack that way, and there's one stack this way, and another stack this way. There's all oh, there's bales of shit. I mean, to choose from. And the boss man hands me a a um, six foot piece of bamboo with a metal pipe attached to the end of it. That's kind of like a hypodermic. And the reason for that being is that I can reach some of the bales that are up on top and I'm sticking these things and I'm pulling some out when using the boss's pipe to, you know, smoke it, just it, taste it, see what it's like. And then I'm like, Oh, I like that. That's, that's nice. Yeah. I said, you know, how many of those you got, you know, kick them all down. So he's got his guys kicking this shit down in front of me and I've got, you know, 
and Ruby's carrying a, a box of spray paint, and I'm spraying a particular mark that I uh, that I use as a trademark on the bale, so I know that when it gets to where it's supposed to go, it doesn't have that mark on it. I didn't buy that shit. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So as I mark mm -hmm. them, other guys are taking them off and they're weighing them. And when I get get to the weight that I'm there to purchase at that time, day's over. We go back to the house, we shower, we clean up and this kind of shit. So um, just before dinner, we have our own apartment in the back. And the apartment actually was like three times as big as my house here in the States. You know, it was a beautiful, um, just a beautiful mansion on the side of a mountain. And um, so here comes dinner time. We walk through the courtyard, you know, this jungle, beautiful jungle um, um, landscaped courtyard. Um, to have cocktails before dinner and I'm sitting in the chair and I'm sitting in the lounge chair and the boss is sitting just opposite me in his chair and our conversations being translated back and forth between Rudy and, and Rico and, and like that, you know, and all of a sudden, um, and during our Conversation. Guy walks into the room, who, and then the guy gets walks away, and the boss puts his cocktail down, and he he gets up and he starts walking toward the hallway, toward the kitchen. And I turn around, and I'm, I'm looking, and I'm watching him, and now he's fast pacing it to the kitchen, and I. Put my drink down and I followed him. <laughs> I went to the kitchen onto the veranda and he's almost in a sprint. Compound lights are facing inward toward the house from the jungle. So everything beyond the jungle is out of vision, out of sight. And he's running across the yard and I'm right on his ass, man, because he's running. He runs in about 10 feet in behind the lights, ducks down into the bushes, and I go past him about 20 feet and I dive like a sprinter off the starting blocks. <laughs> into this pile of bushes and shit. And I'm sitting there holding my head like this, waiting for all hell to break loose, dude. And I'm sitting there what seemed like an hour, but it was only just a couple of minutes. And, you know, I kind of peeked up and I'm looking and I could see the, the back of this boss's head because it's silhouetted against the light. And all of a sudden this voice from the house is yelling out to the woods, Spanish. What the fuck he said? And this guy, the boss, starts laughing. Oh, 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 big belly laughing. I'm thinking, oh, my God, what the fuck is going on here, man? I'm getting pissed, right? So he's brushing himself off. He walks, he's back into the house. And by the time I get cleaned up and I'm back in there, he's already in his chair. He's got a new drink and he's sweating profusely. And I, this minute I sat down and got my drink, he starts snickering. And everybody around him starts kind of snickering and laughing a little bit. And I'm like, I look at Rude. Uh, Rudy and I'm like, what in the fuck just took ha what just happened? And Rudy's Rudy's explaining to me because the boss man he looked he looked right at me as soon as I sat down and he Rudy, Rudy tells me and the boss goes, where in the hell did you think you were going? He looks at me. I said, right off the top of my head, I said, dude, when the big man runs out of the fucking room, my ass goes with him. I said, it only makes sense, you know, but as it turns out, what was happening was when we were flying in, we were scheduled to fly in. The boss never did business in front of his family. He's married. He's got three kids. 
he sent the the wife and the three kids to the in-laws for the for the days the couple of days we were supposed to be there and you know so we wouldn't meet you know mm-hmm. like that it was something that he believed in and i i literally believed in it too i, I kind of took his you know his thought processing when it came to that mm-hmm. um, of, of course he's a family man i mean there's no there's no shooting going on i mean it's not that kind of shit this was this wasn't medellin you know this wasn't pablo this wasn't uh this wasn't Griselda Blanco, you know, none of that shit. Mm. Um, so uh, as it turns out, they're explaining to me, you know, when that guy whispered in his ears, says, your wife's coming up the mountain. He freaks the fuck out. Like, you, you know, and he dashes out of the room and it turns out that he's got this party going on. I mean, there's bowls of cocaine in every room. You know, there's everybody smoking weed. And there's hookers running around this house and just beautiful women all over the place. And he doesn't want to be there. If that's his wife coming home, he didn't want to be there. He wanted to be somewhere else and vouch for and let Rico take the fall for the fucking party. Well, as it turns out, they got it wrong. It wasn't his wife coming home at all. It's just a car that looked like his wife's was coming up the mountain. And the spotters that he has out there just freaked out and said, it's the wife. And it got up that fast to the house it's the wife and he took <laughs> off that's when he asked me what the fuck did you think you were doing <laughs> and next morning i said the fuck this enough we got i got on the jet and i flew home <laughs> but that God was damn. my first time of meeting the, the boss man mm. but um yeah and on and on. but but uh simple my friend if you got anything in particular you want uh, you you want to yeah man about or anything you're curious about or yeah I kind of felt like I was wa- watching a Netflix documentary or something there I just got so engrossed I was like oh shit I'm running a podcast I've actually got to talk and damn um yeah I have quite a few points uh, or rather, rather quite a few few sort of qu- questions um I think you've 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 really concisely there um, covered quite a lot of sort of the 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 story. I think what um, my audience would be interested in, what I'm also interested in, is that you've described the evolution of this, and now you're sort of top of the food chain, as it were. You've met, as you say, the boss man. You've got your own connections. Right. You've you've established your network. Um, obviously, domestically, the laws getting a bit shitty. Reagan's fucking being Reagan. Um, cocaine is doing what cocaine is doing in South America is sort oh. of evolving. Um, how did that sort of impact? Because obviously in the notes I've got you that it, this all ended in 89. Um, so what, I don't want to speak of like the downfall as it were, but we're speaking of the highs here as it were, uh, we're obviously keeping abstract. But yeah, so what, what sort of led to... Um, the da- the downfall as it were how how come it, it the, these good times ended and yeah that'd be my next question really perfect question perfect segue into the uh you know to the to the end of this uh, quasi end to the story well um you know we had a good run we had a great run over three generations and when I ultimately took over like I said I was running five crews and you know the trust factor was such that even still at that time you know, very little was known about what was taking place because it was, mm. I mean, I'm even amazed myself, you know, now in retrospect about how we were able to keep this secret, you know, mm. keep it, you know, the enormity of what was taking place. Um, 
on the down low as, as well as we were able to. But that being said, the only way the United States government had to, you know, by way of infiltrating, if you will, um, what it was we were doing, first of all, they had no idea to the extent it was taking place. Mm. That, first of all. But one of the guys who was, you know, a local, grew up a local, had been in this, you know, industry as I was as a kid and grew up in stuff like this. Now, when we're not doing work, you know, there may be a lag in, you know, in, in jobs or whatever like that. And maybe some time off that between jobs or whatever. I don't give a shit what these guys do. You know, mm-hmm. you gotta, it's none of my business. But when it comes time to work, you're there and you work. And this was always understood. Well, this per, this uh, case in particular, the guy, um, and I'm obviously not naming any names. He was uh, in Colombia doing a cocaine deal on his own, you know, just screwing around and got busted. And he got mm-hmm. put in a Colombian jail. And the United States government heard this guy was in there, figured out he was part of the Everglades, where he came from. He was that guy, you know, maybe he knows something. They went down there and said, look, we'll get you out of this hellish hole of a prison. Here's what you need to do for us. Well, he bit. And they got him out of prison in Colombia, brought him back to the States and put him right back at home and right back to work. And none of us ever knew he was in Colombia. None of us ever knew any of this took place. But he wound up being, with regards to the part of our organization, was a, a chase boat driver. Mm-hmm. And chase boat, as I described, was the boat that rides along the load boat. He's the only guy in that boat. Mm-hmm. He's hired specifically to be the protection for the guys on the loaded boat. So he was privy to this particular job. Now, I was taking 57,000 pounds to an island just north of where we are right now. I'm in I'm in a little uh, city called Fort Myers and just north of us on an island called Pine Island. And I was splitting that 57,000 pounds, half to Pine Island and half to Everglades. So I had two crews taking the load, you know, kind of, you know, relieving the burden from just one crew. And of course he was the chase boat captain that was hired for the, for the, the load boat coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, from Pine Island, so he knew about it right from the beginning. Hence, law enforcement knew about it right from like right from the planning stages a month before the job even took place. This is mm-hmm. you know, it takes a little bit of time to coordinate things and make things are, are right. But we're you know we're moving and working at the same time. But when it comes time to do the job, you know, they already knew about it, and they were watching. And they 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 followed me to Keys to the Keys to Key West to Marathon where I'm looking for particular boats to work these jobs you know because we're always sharing the wealth with different people mm-hmm. not always using the same people we're spreading around letting everybody get some of the work so I knew this um, some of the one of the guys in Everglades um, owned a fish house a rather large fishing uh, fish house in in Marathon in the Keys Marathon Island so we're using some of their boats you know to work so they followed me even down there. Well, the mm-hmm. night that job was taking place, and um, we were up in a place, like I said, in Pine Island, and we're in the backwoods, in the back on the on the back road, in in Bumpuck, nowhere land where nobody has any business being, but the locals knew of this spot that they could go back into. That was an old, overgrown, you know, access way to a dock that was about half broken down. We can load there, so we backed a box truck all the way back through the woods to that dock. That's where our Pine Island, our northern half, was going to come to. And I didn't worry about the guys in Everglades because I grew up with those guys. I knew they, mm-hmm. they had it. 
you know, that's why I wanted to be with the Pine Island guys because they weren't my crew. I just wanted to be, you know, somewhat hands-on, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, the load starts coming. Everything's doing great. We get probably 100, 200 pieces maybe. And all of a sudden, the boats quit coming. No more chatter on the radio. No more boats. Dead silence. A couple minutes goes by, and I've got a spotter out by the road. You know, and he gets on the radio, and he says, Timmy, he says, a car just pulled in here with his lights on, backed out and went, turned around and went back the same way it came. And right immediately, a chill went up my spine, and I'm thinking, that nobody should be out here. We're in the middle of nowhere. That guy's got no business being out here. Now, what the fuck is going on? So I'm running this scenario through this head, this inner monologue's taking off. And I'm walking out front because I want to see, I want to hear for myself. So I get out front and I ask my guy again. I said, now tell me again what the what what you what just took place. So as he's telling me, I turn around, I look at everybody that was with me back at the dock and, and the truck unloading that shit was right behind me because they didn't want to stay back there either, right? Because something was happening. We didn't know what at the time. So as he's telling me this, you know, what he had heard and saw. You could hear the, the the tire noise of what sounded like 20 cars coming down the road, but you couldn't see them because of the trees. Mm. And it, and then uh, as soon as we heard that noise, guys started taking off, right? And if you ran this direction, there was a, um, a huge pine tree forest that you could make your way through and run and, and just be gone. If you ran this way, there was about, couple acres or so of, of uh, what we call palmetto brush, which only grows maybe about four feet tall at the tallest, like that. So you'd have to run through that brush to get to the woods, you know. Mm. And everybody takes off this way, except my dumbass. I, I just, I started running the other direction. I'm, I'm in the palmettos. And by that, I get maybe 10 steps, 15 steps at the most into this shit. And I could see the headlights on the road. And I ducked down. And I squatted down. I wasn't sitting down. I was down on my haunches like this, trying to get under the branches and squealing, stopping, cars stopping, doors opening. And this Bronco, cream color Bronco, pulls into the little road that we were on, that we pulled in on. And I can hear, there's some running that way. There's guys over there. I hear all these guys <laughs> chasing my people, right? But I could see this guy in the Bronco. I'm looking underneath the, you know, the branches. I could see his shoes. Because when he opened the door, the interior light went on. I saw him step out onto the ground. That's just how close I am to this fucking guy. He could spit on me. I'm right there. Mm. But at the same time, you know, and it's, it wasn't uncommon when these boats would come in from, say, Columbia or whatever like that. We'd get an illegal alien from time to time, a Colombian. He'd ride aboard. He'd come ashore and he'd take off. You know, we didn't care. None of my business. Well, this happens this Colombian dude came in on the last boat that showed up before they stopped showing up, and he's there with us, and he takes off running the same way I did, only he didn't stop. He's still going, crunch, 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 and all these dry leaves, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, dude, stop running, you know, because if they go after you, he's going to run slap over me <laughs> to get to you because I'm right there, right? And I, it was like a miracle. It just stopped. I didn't hear him anymore. And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, that, you know, that's behind me. And here I sit, I'm listening to all of this taking place around me, all these voices and, and guys running and shit. And the, uh, we're about 
30 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes before the sun starts to come up. I mean, I'm right there. And I'm thinking, God damn it, man, I got to I got to figure something out because if the sun comes up, dude, they're going to mm. see me. I mean, there's no hiding. I'm, I'm not even 15 feet away. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even four meters away from this fucking guy. Right. And, uh, so I watched the ground and I see him, he gets in his Bronco and he backs out he goes down the road takes off or something like that. But when he took off, I could hear another car was out in the roadway idling, but I didn't know how many people might've been in that car out there. So I wasn't really anything I could do. I had to sit there. Well, he came back in the Bronco and he gets out, shuts his door. And apparently he begins to walk back to where our truck is full of pot bales <laughs> and a voice from the car out in the street and the street is only i mean i could toss a stone like that and hit the, hit his car that's how close they were <laughs> and he yells to this guy in the bronco he says where are you going and the guy in the bronco goes i'm just gonna walk back in there and you know see what we got and the guy goes hang on i'll go with you and i'm thinking damn this is my break man <laughs> So this guy and they go walk and I give them about two, three minutes to get a good ways back into the woods and the car's still running though. And I'm thinking, you know, and it was a police car because I saw the guy's pants, you know, I saw his police, they saw his pants go by. And I'm thinking, you know, now it's almost like it's time to do something. It's, it's, you know, it's fight or flight. And I'm thinking if I look up over these bushes at that car and there's somebody still sitting in that fucking thing, he's going to see me. And I'm going to take off and one of two things are going to happen. He's either going to shoot me or I'm going to knock him the fuck out and I'm going to take off. You know, I have no choice. But I looked up over like that. And there was nobody in the car. Boy, I took off like a jackrabbit, man. I went through across the road, through the ditch and into the bushes and into, into the jungle. And I was running. I ran till I couldn't breathe any longer. Dove under a pile of bushes and covered myself up with branches and leaves and all this kind of shit up up to my face like this. And I laid there, and I I I was in I was waiting to hear who was you know if somebody was running after me, but you know thank God nobody saw me. All those guys running around in there, nobody saw me cross the road and split right. Mm -hmm. And once I felt comfortable about that, I laid there all day long and I could hear the helicopter flying around, and I'd see it every now and then go over me you know, making its pass. I can hear these guys dragging my box truck through the trees, banging through the branches and shit, because it's only half full, right? And listening to this whole day, all day, and I'm laying there, and <clears throat> starts to get evening time-ish, you know, early evening, rather. And I'm laying there, and I'm almost asleep, and I'm, I'm comfortable enough to kind of, because I've been up all the last day and all that, and I almost, almost 48 hours I've been up, you know. Mm. So I close my eye for just a little bit, and I, and I hear these what sounded like a couple of footsteps, real, real close to me. The sticks and were breaking, and leaves were crunching. So I opened my eyes, and I looked, I looked th this way, and there's a goddamn bobcat. And this thing must this thing weighed eight, it must have weighed at least eighty pounds. It was a big ass cat, dude. And it was like this, sneaking mm -hmm. up on me like that because it had seen my my face motions, my face twitching, mm -hmm. and my mouth, you know. Every now and then I do that, mm -hmm. so it was curious at me. It was kind of creeping up on me. And now I'm thinking, just my fucking luck, man. I spent the last forty eight hours, twenty four hours dodging the law. 
and now I'm going to get eaten by this fucking thing. <laughs> and no. I don't know what occurred to me. It just, you know, all of a sudden, I just popped out of the bushes and the leaves and spattered like that. I yelled, like that. This fucking thing leaped in the air and did about three flips. And when it hit the ground, it shot off into the bushes like it was fired out of a cannon <laughs> and took off. And by this time now it's getting to be dark time and the, the following night and I decide shit on this. I'm get, you know, I got to figure my way out of this. So I start walking out toward the road and, and I knew there was a fish house down the, down the, you know, the road about three miles and <clears throat> I could walk there. So I stayed off the road and walked through the trees along the side of the road because several cars and trucks had passed during that time I was walking. I just didn't want to be seen anywhere in the area regardless. So I, I walk up to this in, and it's like two 30 in the morning and the lights are on in the parking lot of this fish house and, and inside the fish processing facility, the lights were on. And I thought, well, that's a little strange. What the fuck? You know, so I'm picking the shit off of me and trying to clean up. But as I'm looking the parking lot, and this is before cell phones, keep in mind, in the middle of the parking lot was a phone box. I guess that's what you call them in the UK, a phone box. Mm -hmm. um, and right out there in the middle of the parking lot. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I just, I can't just walk out of the woods at two in the morning and walk right up to that thing and get on it. Somebody's going to, you know, somebody's going you know, to ask a question, right? So I'm trying to sit in there deciding how in the fuck am I going to get to that phone? Because that's my lifeline right there. That's mm -hmm. my way home. That's my way to call somebody to get my ass out of here, right? My only fucking chance. Otherwise, I'm walking my dick off, you know, to get out of there for 20 miles, you know. So while I'm going over this scenario in my mind, a shrimp boat pulls up to the dock next to the fish house. And, and that's why they were there. They were waiting for this boat to come in to unload its catch. Mm -hmm. Well, they get the catch unloaded in the crew. There's like eight or nine guys on this crew. So they all get in line. They're lined up at that phone booth waiting to make a call home. So I said, this is my chance again, dude. So I just kind of eased out of the woods around there, and I got in line with these guys like I'm part of the crew, right? So it got to my turn to the phone. First thing I did was grab the phone book, opened it up, found taxi, and I called the first number on the line, first number on the list. I called that guy. And I said, look, I told him where I was. I told him I was late. I said, I've been fishing for three weeks. I really you know I want this ride bad. I said, I don't care where you are. Just show up. I'll give you $600 cash. Plus, I'll give you your fare if you just come and get me. I'm tired. I want to go home. And mm -hmm. the guy said, oh, damn, okay. You, sh you sure about that 600 And I said, yes, I'm damn sure. But while I'm talking to this guy, the sheriff's deputy car pulls in real slow. It pulls into the parking lot, goes all the way around me around the parking lot real slow then it goes out another exit over here and then drives back off down the road and i'm thinking yeah dude just get your ass here <laughs> <I can't laughs> ride, right so i'm going up let everybody else have their chance you know it wasn't a half hour later and it comes this taxi and this guy goes and and um i climb in the back seat i threw six hundred dollar bills in his lap and i said let's go take me to take me to Punta Gorda to a hotel room man he said i'm tired and he drove me out of there to a hotel room and that's how i got away <laughs> But it wasn't long after that, here comes the investigation and all mm. the kind of shit, you know, because they knew who I was. They knew everything, you know, what was going on and shit like that. They just had to pursue this a little further and, you know, and question the individuals, you know, that were that they suspect were involved in this kind of shit. Turns mm. out the guy in the Bronco that I was talking about, he winds up being 
ultimately I figure out that he is the um, the uh, resident field agent for um, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They are the most powerful law enforcement agency next to the federal government in the state of Florida. So their head of their agency, Ron, um, um, his name just went out of my head. I can't believe that. But um, anyways, oh, David Waller. I'm sorry. Brain fart. Uh, he winds <laughs> up being the guy in the fucking Bronco. Mm. So here I am, 30 years later, I get an email that's, that says, hi, Timmy, how you doing? I hope you're doing well. If you need any help uh, arranging speaking engagements, you know, please don't feel free to reach out to me. And I'm thinking, there's no introduction, there's no name, and who the fuck is this email <laughs> from? So I scroll to the bottom of the email. And there it is right there. And it says, David R. Waller, field agent, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, FDLE, Lakeland, Florida, which is in Northern Florida. Now he's in Northern Florida. I'm thinking, hold on a minute now. So I type back real quick. He said, you wouldn't happen to be the guy that busted me, are you? Click. Didn't take 20 seconds. I got an answer back. He goes, Yep, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so we started conversing. We got one more talking back and forth, and we just became the dearest of friends, man. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine. This guy chased me and wanted to put me away. You know, ultimately, you know, when I was arrested by these guys, mm-hmm. um, I was given. Well, the, the front page of the Naples, the local daily news, and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll put up a picture of that too. We'll send that along as well. Um, the headline reads area part of a U.S. pot drag net. And it says in a subtitle, it says 38 helped import over 150 tons. And then they give a street value of about 100, nearly 160 million or some shit like that. And, and um, there's two pictures on the paper. One is a picture of um, one of my crewmen, um, Mikey Patton being escorted out of the Everglades City Jail by this uh, U.S. Customs officer on his way to the federal building in Fort Myers, about 45 miles away. And the other picture was a picture of just my my buddy Jerry, my crewman Jerry, um, um, with hand, you know, handcuffs and walking like this. Well, what they didn't realize until after they started, you know, three weeks or so into this investigation, that the 150 plus tons, nearly 400,000 pounds they were alluding to, was only about a week's work. <laughs> it didn't take them long to figure that out. That's when they, but they realized all of a sudden, man, we got something here, right? So, um, when I came time for my arraignment, I was given by this magistrate who you you mentioned, Reagan. She was given her magistrate position by Reagan, President Reagan. Mm-hmm. And the only one that can re- revoke that position is another president. So she has this designation as magistrate for life. And she came in through the president for the Reagan administration. And, you know, Nancy Reagan at that time was just say no. I mean, every and and marijuana was the scourge of America. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. no, they were just trash and the shit out of it. And I knew she was appointed by Reagan. So I'm thinking, oh, my fucking ass is had it, man. I'm gone, right? So as it turns out, you know, um, I was given when I was arraigned. She. Uh, she gave me 106. I had four indictments. Each indictment has a, has four counts on them. 
Each count on the indictment holds a 10-year mandatory to life sentence. That's just one count. All four counts is a mandatory 40 years to life, and there's a million dollars fine attached to each one. I had four indictments. I had 16 counts, 16 10 years to life sentences, 160 years mandatory to life, and $16 million in fines. And when she said that, <laughs> there were seven of us, my, me and six other of my crew guys being arraigned in front of the same magistrate that day, and my buddy Teddy standing right next to me, he goes... When she said $16 million, he kind of says under, under his breath only so she could hear him. She goes, he goes, why don't you make it 30? Yeah. <laughs> $16 million, why don't you make it 30? He goes. And she looks down at me. She takes off her glasses. And, you know, and Teddy's going on about, you know, you know, you want to give us life in prison for, you know, and we couldn't get that shit in here fast enough. He's trying to overtalk the judge. And mm. we look at all of our attorneys in the row behind us and they're going, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. Like this, right? So the magistrate, she takes off her fucking reading glass and throws him down on her desk. And she looks me square in the eye and she goes, Mr. McBride, she says, you're in serious trouble, sir. She says, the men and the women of this country did not fight in World War One and World War Two." or in Korea and Vietnam for you to mess it up with drugs. And that's right then when she said that, I knew my ass went what? like that. I knew I was in trouble, man. <laughs> I was fucked. And she went on to say that I have a mission beyond my job to see this through, to see that this does not happen again. And I knew right away, you know, we're done, mm -hmm. we're gone. But had we known that the sentences were severe as they were, we probably would have stopped a year earlier because it took, now what they had done prior was um, before changing the federal sentencing guidelines to what they're called as mandatory minimums now. And that was instituted in September 1st in 1987 for the sole purpose of ending Caribbean smuggling in Southwest Florida. Because mm -hmm. the sentences that were being handed out prior to that prior to us, weren't having any effect on the industry whatsoever. This shit didn't stop. It just kept coming and coming. They put those, they put our older generations in jail. I, we picked it up and the kids just took off with it. We upped the game. We had better boats. We had better technology. We had better counter surveillance technology. We were using the same counter surveillance technologists that the government and the law enforcement agencies in Miami were using, except we had more money and we could buy better. It is just as good as not better counter surveillance technology. <laughs> mm. That was a crazy part of all. But um, she said, I have a mission beyond my job, you know, and that's when I knew I was, I was fucking screwed. So, Ultimately, what wound up happening was, and the reason why I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with all you and all your amazing subscribers and viewers is for the simple fact that the United States government had, because of the significance of what there was taking place and the amount of people that were being arrested, they discovered that now they're getting younger men, young men and young women, because the entire, I mean, that Life magazine article that was written that I had alluded to earlier was had at one point talked about a small Southwest Florida town that was mostly women and young adults because the entire male population's gone to prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that just left us kids, but we were the infrastructure. So we hung around and kept on going. 
So what they weren't willing to do was and what they because there were so many of us, what they decided to do was, OK, we're going to give you these this opportunity to cooperate because you've got if you've got one indictment, you've got a mandatory 40 fucking years without parole. That means you're doing 92 percent of your time because they're only taking 52 years, 52 days off your sentence every year after the first year. So you're doing that time. You're gone. Plus, you got this enormous fine on your ass. Mm. So along with giving them that, what they did was, because now they realize this is, you know, they're down to the kids. Now. <laughs> there's nothing left. And they said, you know, if you cooperate with us, now there's a statute within the United States Annotated Codes. It was under uh, Title 18, uh, Rule 35, it's called, which is giving the government substantial enough cooperation where they can now sentence you below the mandatory minimum 10 years. They can give you probation if they deemed fit, you know, mm -hmm. but unless you cooperate, they're bound by that guideline to give you that amount of time. That's that, you know, I mean, it's like a slide rule now. There's no mm. more discretionary measures by the magistrates. So, but along with that, they were given immunity from prosecution, from anything that they'd ever done, except for one count we're going to hold in reserve. So you can freely and openly tell us who, what, when, where, why, how, and everything you were involved with without any repercussions, you know, as far as we're concerned. But we'll hold that one count where we're going to give you probation. We can give you a year. We can send you home if we choose to. That like that. That's your only out. Mm -hmm. So what wound up happening, and and after researching and doing my own work, and be ultimately becoming friends with the uh, the United States Customs agent that was on the front page of that newspaper that I told you about, escorting my buddy to the federal jail. Mm -hmm. His name was John D.C. Was United States Customs agent. He's now one of my dearest friends. <laughs> We met in a gym in, LA, in an LA fitness working out about six, seven years ago, and we just became the dearest of friends, man. It's just, I mean, it blows my mind to think mm -hmm. about, but a guy chasing me and put me away for life is now one of my dearest friends, but this is how it worked mm -hmm. out. Well, as it turns out, we were giving this, this um, deal to whoever would cooperate because all this they wanted to do was, and the United States prosecutor told me this one day, she pulled me aside, she said, Timmy, all we want to do is stop this. We just want it to end because we are done with it. <laughs> we're tired of it, you know, because we're not making any headway, man. I mean, they're spending billions and billions of dollars a year on this war on drugs and they're not getting anywhere, you know? So they said, look, what we got to do to stop this because the sentencing that the sentences that were being handed out prior to this weren't having the desired effect. Mm -hmm. The guys were getting out, you know, eight months, 10 months, 12 months, like I said earlier, because that's all they were guidelined for. But now they changed the guidelines and none of us knew it. But what also took place was that they gave the opportunity to get out from under those life sentences if you would cooperate with us and give us some information about and tell us about this instance and this. Well, ultimately, what wound up happening was so many people were being arrested. So many names were being spoken of that they would, that the guys were literally going back to Everglades or wherever and saying, look, they, they they know your name. They know who you are. They're going to get you. And if they take you and they, you know, here's what you I advise. We advise you take their offer, cooperate with them, get this immunity clause that they're handing out so you can tell them freely. But what the immunity did was it allowed them to tell on people and places and things and this and that while everybody else had immunity too. So what they said was tell on Jimmy, Teddy, and Willie and Johnny because 
they already have this deal. They've got immunity. You can't hurt them. Yeah. Follow the logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred so percent. That was by by design rather than by accident. That was put in there for us to discover, and for our attorneys to figure out. Hey, this is your way out. So you mm-hmm. can tell on these people and not hurt them. So everybody's telling back and forth on one another, but nobody's getting hurt over it. We're just getting out from under life sentences. Mm-hmm. But when it came to a guy like me, they want to know who's the guys in Miami. Where are you flying off to in this private jet that we know you own? Where are you going? Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't tell them that. You know, I said, you know, although we worked this for three generations, only one time did I ever see or put a gun in my hand for maybe 10 minutes, you know, nothing violent whatsoever about it. And, you know, you want to do this, you want to, you know, you want to put us, put us away for life for this kind of shit, you know, and mm. what ultimately, again, what wound up happening was the government recognized that. So that's why they, you know, rather than by accident, but by design gave us, you know, gave us this option out. But when it came to me, I can't tell you about these guys. I can't tell you about Jamaica. I can't tell you about Colombia. I can't tell you about the three times I worked for the president of Panama in those days, Manuel Noriega. That's a story that I haven't told yet, but we could be on for hours telling that shit. But had I done so, you know, you take, even though we weren't violent in any way, shape or form, you take one of these fucking guys and throw them under the bus, a Cuban, a Colombian or, you know, Central American or or whatever, they're going to come back at you and do what they're absolutely very good at doing. And that is kill your mother, your dad, mm-hmm. your brother, your sisters, the dogs, the cat, and even get fucking kill, eat the goldfish, you know, because this is what they do. And mm-hmm. they would not hesitate to do such a thing. So I couldn't tell them anything. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't tell you shit. You know, I'm sorry. So I didn't, I wasn't, I was able to take advantage of the tell everything clause and get out from under these mandatory minimums. What I was able to do, however, mm-hmm. and once again, the reason why I'm able to have this conversation with you and your and your viewers is simply the fact that you know, first of all, they weren't willing to put kids, and that's what we were. I mean, I was 20, 27 years old at that time, and, you know, I'm 65 now. And when I look back, 27, you're, you're a kid, you know, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it. They weren't willing to put kids in jail for life for something that their fathers and uncles and cousins and everybody else were only getting 8, 10, 12 months ago, a year ago. Yeah, We were getting 8, 10, 12 months for a year ago. They were willing to make that leap and put their kids in prison for life or something that their dads and moms got away with for 8 months and 10 months in prison. So mm-hmm. they gave us this. They gave this out. My only way and my only salvation came by way of two treasury agents came to me one day and they pulled me out of my jail cell in Fort Myers. I was in uh, 10 months in federal lockup. Took me out of the building and around the corner to the federal building and I was shackled with my wrist. I was belly chained. I was shackled to my belly chain. I had shackles on my ankles and a chain running from my belly to my ankles. They had me knotted up, buddy. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing what's called the convict shuffle because your feet can only go so far apart because of the chains, right? And I'm all bundled up like this. And I'm saying, good morning, good morning to everybody on the sidewalk as we're passing, right? <laughs> they take me in this room where this man and this woman treasury agent with two identical brown vested suits on and they put me in this little tiny room like a phone booth with a little thing in the window that you could talk at and they came up to the window and they slapped their little gold badges it's treasury department badges against the window and i went oh fuck, just like that 
and the United States prosecutor, Susan Daltuva, was in the next room listening and watching over CC. <laughs> Excuse me. She comes bolting through the door. She goes, no, no, Timmy. She says, this is not what you think it is. And I said, well, Susan, why don't you tell me what I think this is? Because if this is about cooperation, I said, you can just let me just open that door and take me back to my cell and take me back home because that ain't happening. She goes, no, no, no. She says, what we would like, and if you're willing to tell us, is how you were able to do this for a decade and we couldn't catch you. And I said, well, fuck, I can tell you dumbasses. <laughs> now, game's over, you know, so why not? But I won't give you any names. I'll impart the scenario to you just as much as I have to you. Mm -hmm. And if you can glean anybody or anything out of that, and then God bless you, take their asses and have at it. Because, I mean, I was paying off Marine Patrol officers. I was paying off sheriff's deputies. I was paying off anybody that would take money. Would, you know, we were paying them off and like that. I said, but I won't tell on them, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you can figure it out on the ground through what I might tell you about the process, then, you know, okay, whatever. Well, that wound up ultimately being a saving grace of mine because they didn't ultimately consider that substantial enough cooperation because they wanted the Cubans in Miami. They wanted my connections around the Caribbean. Where are you going? And, you know, mm. they always want the big guy. They always yeah. want to go to the source. Well, it wasn't getting there by me. And so that's why I said, you know, I can tell you how fucking stupid you are. And I said, you know, first couple of questions I told this federal agents, this man and this woman were, you know, I said, you know, do you know the geography of Everglades City? And they both looked at me and they said, oh, yeah. And I said, okay, how many roads into that little island and how many roads out of there are there? And they both looked at me and said, well, there's one. And I said, yeah, one fucking road. And I said, now, how many roads are there from there to Miami? one i said yes there's one goddamn road and i said how do you think we got all those millions of pounds of weed from that little island to miami i said i can guarantee you they didn't get there on the backs of pelicans and fucking porpoises man <laughs> they went right down that one goddamn road and 99 times out of 100 my people are waving at you as they're going past because who in their right mind would ever suspect that 40 tons of shit's coming out of this little island almost every day nobody mm. Nobody would ever suspect such a thing. And I'm talking about the money. I'm talking about, you know, like when I bring a job in for you, I don't get paid right away. This is another common misconception. I don't get paid right away. It's not give you your shit, give me my money. If I bring your shit in for you, and let's just say you owe me $20 million for having done so, I'll send all the load to you except $20 million worth of it. I'll put it over here in a house over here in some somebody's house and keep a hold of it. And 99 times out of 100, that house was was the mayor's house. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be that? So, if you pay me 10 million dollars of what you owe me, I'll give you 10 million dollars of your shit. You pay me my whole 20 million, I'll send all of the 20 million of shit that I'm holding on to to you. Because I have to get paid out of that load once it begins to sell. So it mm -hmm. could be two weeks and a half weeks or three before I start to see money. But in the meantime, I'm keeping my $20 million worth of shit because you lose your shit. I make one phone call and that shit's gone. We're getting paid. You know, mm -hmm. that's just how it worked. So there would be times in which, you know, two or three jobs of pay would come in 
And I'd be over there, you know, trying to count 40 million, 50, 60 million dollars in a money house in Coral Gables that had hundreds in this master room, 50s in this master bedroom, 20s in this bedroom, 10s in this one, and the fives in an eight car garage out back. Because if you've ever seen a million dollars in five dollar bills, would would fill this room behind me just about, you know. And I wound up ultimately realizing that I'm counting money. For days on end when I should be in Colombia or I should be in Jamaica or I should be somewhere in the Caribbean buying weed or I should be helping my crew or doing something. But it's like sitting in this fucking house counting money with six money machines we got from Bank of America from Miami that are just going constantly counting and we're banding and ledging and shit. And guys are going in and out of rooms with laundry baskets full of $100 bills, full of $50 bills because I can't take all one denomination. I have to get paid in all different denominations because some poor fucker will ultimately wind up with that eight car garage full of fucking $5 bills and nobody wants that. Right. But, um, so that being said, we ultimately discovered like a lot of the guys that during those days was to weigh the shit because every dollar, every bill, regardless of its denomination weighs a gram. Mm -hmm. Well, there's 28 of those in an ounce. There's 16 of those in a pound, so beyond that, it's just math. So all we have to do is pay attention to what denomination we're throwing into the basket and start weighing it. For instance, mm-hmm. 110 pounds in 20s is a million dollars. So now we're just weighing. So instead of five days to count $50 million or so, it's only taking me an afternoon. Just weigh it and pour it out. But it would take me, ultimately, it would take me longer to get the pay home Back to the other side of the to the state, that 120 mile trip across back to Everglades, it would take me a lot. Sometimes it would take me longer to get the money home than it took to get them their pot to them. <laughs> That's a lot of money, and we're talking about literally thousands of pounds of money, mm-hmm. tons of money, and you just don't put that in the back of your car and drive home with it because the car ain't going anywhere, man. You know, you see these movies about, you know, crooks running around with a big old bag of money and it's swinging there, jumping over fences and shit. Bullshit. That fucking thing's heavy, man. They got a rope and they're dragging that bugger behind them, I'll guarantee you. I picked up a Samsonite suitcase one day that was full. It had $600,000 in mixed different bills in it. And I reached around to pick it up and pulled the handle right off the fucking thing. I couldn't move it. Fucking <laughs> hell. Wow. So... That's all part of all of that. Yeah. But when I was telling these people this and they're interviewing me, you know, they decided, fuck it. So one day they take me out to interview me and they go past the room that I typically go into and they open this door to the smaller room and there's one guy in there with a polygraph machine, a lie detector machine. Mm-hmm. They put me on this thing and questioned me because they weren't believing the stories that I was telling them. The amounts I was describing to them and, and the sheer volume of money I was describing to them that was beyond their comprehension. They weren't believing me. They thought I was lying to them. But when I got done with that test, I walked out of there grinning my ass off and I turned around and looked and they were all scratching their fucking head going, damn, he wasn't lost. <laughs> you know, I passed that fucking thing with flying colors. You know, so ultimately that's, you know, what wound up happening was me describing them, how it was done, you know, this and that. And I, I uh, came before the magistrate for my sentencing. Now my... $1.2 million attorney out of Baltimore had worked a deal whereby I could not get sentenced to more than 20 years, but because of what I described to them wasn't considered substantial enough cooperation, they couldn't give me less than 10 on the one count that they held back. Mm-hmm. So 
the judge at my sentencing thanked me in appreciation for the invaluable information into the insight into my world that they had no clue of and decided that she that the 10 year mandatory would be enough sentence for me. So I got 10 years mandatory in federal prison mm -hmm. uh, dispensed by this federal judge and long to, uh, so, to bring the story to conclusion. Sorry, uh, was, that regard. No, go ahead. Uh, I was I am desperate for a piss, so I was just going to pause it for two seconds, run at the loo, and come back. If that's all right. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> I'll just uh, start calling in. Yeah, apologies, by the way. The last sort of five minutes there I was intently listening, and my bladder was just getting fuller and fuller. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, sorry, you were saying uh, ten years. You get your ten years man mandatory. Yeah, ten years mandatory, and. Um, they couldn't do any better than that because what they wanted was, of course, I said my Caribbean connections and people like that, which they weren't going to get. But she did hold in, you know, in at some regard, the information and um, being invaluable by, by describing how this whole scenario worked. And, of course, they didn't have any clue. But um, so I got to 10. I wind up going to a federal institution, a federal correctional institution in Tallahassee, FCI, which is a minimum uh, one level under maximum because I was in, considered an escape risk and uh, began my 10-year sentence. Ultimately, um, what, what uh, transpired from there, which is the reason why I'm able to have this conversation, is simply that when you go to prison, you have a job, you work, they put you to work, you're doing something. Well, my first job was, was put in, uh, I was put in construction. That's remodeling and updating and doing, you know, working on the prison and shit like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, one afternoon I'm out in the rec yard working out and I, I befriend this this guy, Roly, Rolando, who is one of the characters in my book that I write about, obviously. And, um, you know, I said, dude, I don't want to build this prison, man. I said, he said, well, you know what? I have I, my job is working in the legal library down in the education center. Now, um, Federal Correctional in Tallahassee was the if you was the um, the hub of education within the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Meaning, if you wanted an education of any type or you wanted a degree of any kind, you could be you, you could submit yourself for transfer to be transferred to that prison, and they would give you the education that you desired because they would have civilian um, professors and teachers and whatnot come on you know come on and and and, and teach you. Mm -hmm. Well. Every prison is also required by law to have for their prisoners to have access to legal material. So not only did they have in the education center, did they have a regular library, but they had a uh, they had a legal library as well. And when you watch these um, these um, films or uh, television programs, when they show a, a lawyer's office and they've got all these books on the walls behind them and shelves and they're all the same colors and you know like this, well those are all um, here in the states. They're the United States annotated codes, and in the United States, law and uh, adjudication is is um, solely dependent on what's called precedent law, meaning that if you're adjudicated a certain way, and another individual has a case that has similar language to yours, and and similar definitions and properties regarding the, the criminality that was taking place means that you have to be sentenced similarly. You have to be sentenced appropriately. 
one guy can't be sentenced one way and another guy doing the same thing can't be sentenced differently. You have to have unified sentencing. So that's what these United States codes annotated are for. And that's why we call precedent law. Well, um, Rolando just so happens he worked in the law library and he said, well, you know what? We kind of need a guy down there. Let's, you know, maybe let's go down there this afternoon and, you know, and talk to Dennis. Now, Dennis Lehman, who is a character I read about in my book as well, he was, was a bank robber. He had been in for 28 years before I met him for bank robbery. He's in the Guinness Book of World's Records for having been given the most amount of time for that particular crime. And he didn't even rob the fucking bank. He was just the guy flying the airplane for the two that did. Mm. <laughs> but the two that did, one got six years, one got 12. Dennis got 52 years. Why? Because he they knew he was flying cocaine from Mexico to Nevada, but they couldn't catch him. So when they caught a bank robbery, they threw this fucking shit at him, man, and put him away. So back to the story, he winds up, you know, he liked me right away. Timmy, 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 Timmy. So I got transferred. I got the job. I got it okay. And I got a job as a, you know, a a clerk. And um, about a year later or so, excuse me, actually a couple of years later, Rolando and I wound up taking a correspondence course through the University of Honolulu. And... I got a um, a law degree. I got an associate's in law. And uh, so through Dennis Lehman, um, got a, um, a degree in uh, literary arts as well while I was there. I mean, I had the time to fucking do it. And then working with the law with prisoners and, you know, and trying to, you know, in order to be a clerk, you have to figure, you have to know your way through the books. You have to know how to find the law and find the precedent law and all this can help these guys do this. So I figured what better way to do that than to get a degree and learn how to do this shit since I'm going to be here, you know? So I did that and I'm sitting in my office one day and they have what's called the Black's Legal Dictionary. And uh, Black's Legal Dictionary is the the sole um, um, defining book of um, legalese, whether you be a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Um, Black's Dictionary defines that um, that Latin terminology for you and actually gives you their um, definition of particular wording. Well, I'm sitting at my desk one day and I'm just looking through this fucking book, just fucking off. And I come to where it says cooperation. So I read him real quickly what their definition of cooperation is. And quite simply, what it amounts to is that in under that definition is that if you ask me for something and I, and I give it to you, I have essentially by that definition cooperated with you. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, fuck, they want to know how I did all this shit. It took three weeks for me to tell them. So I think that's cooperation right there. According to this definition, they wanted my fine, which was ultimately $4 million that they got in cash. Didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. They wanted a, they wanted a um, uh, cashier's check. I said, you take it to the bank, get a fucking cashier's check. I ain't doing it. So I considered that was cooperation according to this definition. So I wrote my own brief for um, submission to the Middle District Courts in Florida to the United States government for reduction of sentence based on cooperation and based on their definition of cooperation. And I didn't want to be ridded out of prison to go to the proceeding for the judge to finally give a decision on, on my on my brief, it's, which took about a month down the road. So I sent my brother, I called my brother, I said, just go in my place and I'll call you tonight and you tell me what happened. Because I'm 
I'm three and a half years into this sentence, and it took me all that time to get my bunk from the middle of the room to the wall next to the window because people either have to get sent home or they got to die because, I mean, the average sentence in this fucking place is 35 years, you know, and it, you don't move very quickly, you know, throughout the room. And there was no way because if I'd have gone down to, you know, rid out to to uh, participate in my own hearing, I would have lost my bunk space at the window. So fuck that. It's more important <laughs> to me you know, than going there. So, <laughs> excuse me. I'm three hours waiting in line to get on the phone to, to call collect home for my brother to find out what the hell took place. And he answered the phone. And first thing out of my mouth was, what'd she give me, man? And he says, dude, I got a first guy to tell you. He says, you know, were you fucking that prosecutor or something? He said, because she was talking really very good about you. I said, no, dude, <laughs> stop screwing with me, man. Just tell me what happened. He goes, you know, he says, um, she gave you four years. And I said, dude, I said, you know, please don't screw with me. Come on now. What, what the hell, what took place? He said, I'm not kidding you, dude. She dropped you from 10 to four. I'm three and a half years in. <laughs> now I got six months left and I, I started screaming. Ah! I fell backwards, almost pulled the fucking phone off the wall. <laughs> and I pissed off 30 other inmates that are waiting to get on the phone. You know, that would have gotten killed over that one. <laughs> I, I, you know, in a, in a matter of moments on that phone call, I went from, you know, um, I had uh, six six years cut off my sentence in that in in a matter of moments when my brother said that, and so I'm now here I am I'm six months short to going home, and I got out on on New Year's Day, 1993 no 1992 New Year's Day, I spent four full years in prison, and I got my own ass out <laughs> and. Um, that's why I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you now, mm. because it's all behind. It's all a matter of, you know, the past. And like I said, there are at least there are no less than five gentlemen who were the head of um, these government a agencies who are some of my dearest friends right now. I have friends, you know, from the CIA and the Secret Service and the FBI and and um, Florida Department of Law Enforcement and John DC, who's one of my dearest friends, like I said earlier, was United States Customs. He did a Viceland uh, video with me, a Vice Network video with me. Mm -hmm. um, we shot for three days in Everglades, and they put a nine-minute, thirty-eight-second clip of it online. And within the first twenty-four hours, it had one point one million views. And today, it has over one hundred and ten million views, and I've gained an audience and fan following in Australia of about twelve million. Two and a half million in New Zealand, about three million and throughout the Philippines and Indonesia. And I've now got a just shy of a million do uh, a person fan base in Thailand of all places for Christ's sake. You know, because mm -hmm. of that, because of my book, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, and the telling of the tale and, and the way in which it's told. And it's quite literally the beginning and the ending of the Caribbean marijuana industry in the mm -hmm. here in North America started with the first generation gentleman by the name of Lauren Tosh Brown. Tosh is his nickname. So Lauren Tosh Brown, Lauren Brown, you can look this stuff up. Like I said, don't take my word for it. This all sounds like bullshit coming out of here, going to there. That's fine. Take it as you will. But before you make that judgment, look it up because this is all fact. This is, there's nothing, I'm not mm -hmm. hiding anything here at all. And it's, this is just how it was done. This is just mm -hmm. how I grew up. So all I knew as a kid was 30 and 40 ton loads in ships with 300,000 pounds of, of weed on them from, you know, Jamaica to Colombia. And, you know, the, um, the 
what prompted me to write this actually was, you know, I had heard heard about the um, uh, there was a guy in in in, um, in Washington in in, in, the, in the, here in the Northeast in the states and uh, by the name of Brian O'Day. And he was credited for bringing in some, I don't know, million pounds or so of Asian wheat through the Gulf of Alaska, putting it on fish processing vessels, packaging it like frozen fish and bringing it right to the dock in Seattle and unloading it right from the boat right into trucks in broad daylight. And oh, anyway, they have a different strategic spots around the boat boxes that had actual frozen fish in them so every now and then one of those guys would you know knock one over and they people all around would see the fish scattering on the deck and shit so wouldn't think anything of it well take his million pounds george young and all that he did flying marijuana from you know mexico to to california or to the to the nevada desert a dozen arizona and driving there and like that but there was also the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church out of Jamaica who bought a mansion in Biscayne Bay on a little island called Star Island, one of only about nine mansions on the island. I think Oprah Winfrey owns one of them. You know? <laughs> and uh, they're credited with about a million pounds. And then there were some clowns um, who, and a guy run the little organization called the, uh, the Black Tuna Gang, a um, guy by the name of Robert Flatshorn, who just passed away here not too long ago. And I got to hearing these stories and I got to thinking to myself, well, damn, you take every one of these guys claim to fame, you put them all in a pile. That doesn't even come to a year's work for us. I mean, so if you want to hear a story, dude, bet the fuck up, here it comes, you know, and uh, hence the book, Saltwater Cowboy, The Rise and the Fall of a Marijuana Empire, that's me. And this is the book. And this is, a, this is now considered... Um, for the sixth year, a uh, historical textbook for two South Florida universities use my book as a as a as a as a required historical text because it's it's the history, it's the truth, it's 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 validation, it's validation, you know, one hundred percent. It's very cool, and I just love telling this story, man. And there's a lot we just got started, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to, you know, we can we can uh, have another chat another time, dude. I'd love to. Uh well. Uh, so we, well, yeah, I'm kind of a bit speechless here, man. Um, you, you, I've just, I've just, just gone, yeah, I've just gone through my notes, and you basically answered ninety percent of the question I had about your actual sort of career, as it were. Um, and yeah, what what a tale! Uh, I I may have to pester you for a signed copy of your book to add to my collection. Um, but yeah, man, dude, like, so so. You came out in what you say ninety two, um, yeah. Uh, so you came out came out ninety two. How January, that was January? That was New Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. January first. Wow. So how did obviously like when the operation wound down? How did that affect the the five islands and the 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 regions that you operated in? Was it a noticeable loss to like the economy for so many people to lose that kind of income? Well, you know what? That being said, and that's an excellent question, my man. Um, during that time, during that era, um, the main cash crop coming out of Florida was obviously oranges and orange juice. The second main crop coming out of Florida during those days was cannabis. <laughs> so 
when I ran these five different crews and put all this work and got everybody working and kept them together, once this operation took place, Operation Peacemaker, they called it, mm-hmm. the cooperation and the domino effect started to take place and one after the other after the other. Ultimately, over 250 people were arrested in that operation. There was no hiding it. There was no escaping it. There were mandatory sentences. If you didn't cooperate, you were gone for life. And this was a reality that we all had to deal with. And we all had to learn as kids. It was, you know, and even today, I, in, in retrospect, never did I wrap my mind around the fact that I was going to go in prison for the rest of my life. It's mm-hmm. just so mind-bogglingly unbelievable that I just, you know, it just never occurred to me that this could happen until I got to prison. Mm-hmm. They slammed that fucking steel door shut, and I heard the keys go clink like that. That's when it became real to me, and I knew mm-hmm. when I met Dennis— and I met George, who was one of the characters in my book. That, that this the, the book is not just a boring statistical romp through the war on drugs. It's actually a story about, you know, that I tell every night in prison during games of gin rummy that I played with another bank robber who was who became so dear to me, he was like my father. He had been in 32 years before I met him. And every night we played gin rummy. And one night he just happened to say, Timmy, want to tell me if, you know, what he knew I was a smuggler. I knew he was a bank robber, but we didn't know each other's story. And he would tell me, you know, Timmy, you know, all of a sudden he said, Don't tell me about this crazy shit you were doing, man. And I said, Well, George, you know, if you're finally going to ask me that question, let's start at the beginning. And that's how the book goes. It goes, it weaves back and forth into prison and these crazy pothole and shit and back to prison. And I ultimately tell you about George's bank robbery thing and how he got the time he got and how he did it and all this kind of stuff. So um, mm. it's, it's rather engaging and nothing is more important. And the, there's 172 plus reviews on Amazon about my book. And they all are pretty much the same. There's a couple of guys in there went off the rails on me a little bit, probably because they were their cops or they were prison guards or some shit like this. But I had to write back and let them know that this was written under the context of in the context of me as that kid, mm-hmm. not me today. Yeah. I have nothing but the most respect for law enforcement and what it is that they do. But when it came to that and in that era, we weren't considered considering ourselves criminals. Criminal is not the word that we would use to describe what it was we were doing. We were considered ourselves to be outlaws. Outlaws meaning we worked outside your law because that's the law we don't necessarily agree with. You know, so there's a huge difference in, you know, from our point of view when you say one or the other, you know, but um, this is just how it was. This is just the, you know, what I grew up as, you know, uh, up with as a kid and, and um, as shocking and an unreal and as unbelievable as it may appear or it may sound to a lot of people. And I know it is. I know a lot of people are out there going, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> well, like I said, please don't take mm-hmm. my word for it. Look it up. This is all history. This is all everything. Yeah. You know, all the news agencies and everybody that ever reported on this, you know, it's all there. It's all facts. It's all there for you to read. And all I'm doing is giving you a little more personalized, focused, in-depth look at the mechanics, the machinery, the operations, this, the sophistication of what it was that we ultimately did over three mm-hmm. generations and perfected it and got better with every generation. Yeah. You know, and like everything else, we evolve. Mm. The government evolves. As the government evolves, we adapt and we evolve. You know, so it was a game of you know back and forth. Try this, mm-hmm. try this, do this. We're doing this. Let's counter move with that. You know, 
plus the fact that we were in an area where there was really nobody out there, man. I mean, we were in, take a look on the map of what Southwest Florida looks like. <laughs> There's nothing here. Mm-hmm. And um, God bless you all for, you know, sticking around for as long as you have, if you stuck through to the end and you know how to listen to this, but I encourage mm-hmm. you, you know, you know, pick up the book and have a read, man. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing, you know, and the reviews come out and they almost, like I said, sound the same, you know what? picked it up and couldn't put it down or it was you know, so engaging and so you know like this and so that and then nothing more gratifying to an author than to have your work turn out exactly how you intended mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. intent was to pull you to the front of your seat from the first paragraph and keep you there till you read the last word and that's exactly what it does yeah. and um and i pull no punches man i'll tell you i tell you exactly how it is it's definitely it's it's it sounds like it. I mean, obviously, I'll include links um, to relevant news sources, media, and obviously where people can get the book here in the UK. Actually, I've got quite a global audience. Uh, most people, obviously, we know of the organization that shan't be named that's taken over the fucking world, but makes uh, books very easy to come to our door. Um, that that's on anyone if they want to do it. I I'm a victim of that system sometimes, although I try to buy pre-loved books. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's... If you want reader, I mean, I have an audible version. You can listen to it. There's nice. a uh, Kindle version, which you don't have to have the book. It's just a push in a download. I don't know if that's available yet in the UK. I'm sure it is. Hard covers were my first editions. Those are sold out. Those are going for, I've seen them being resold on Amazon for as much as $260 because they're, they're such a unique tale and, and they're very rare and they're very sought after. But mm-hmm. that being said, once that started to happen, my publisher called me about eight uh, months ago and said, Timmy, we're putting your book back into print because there's such a demand for it. <laughs> so now it's out in paperback, which is all the same as the co- hardcover. The only difference is one's paper and one's hard. you know. And the guy that tells my book through Audible is a very cool guy. His name is Wes Talbot. And he, prior to doing my story, did mostly Stephen King's work. He did 32 books for Audible. Most of those were Stephen King's books. And he has the voice to tell the story. Mm, nice. Uh, very cool. Yeah. So, so uh, I suppose my questions now, I guess, are going to be kind of post, um, sure. po- post this, as it were. Um, how quick, once you came out of prison, did you sort of, did, did you conceive of the book? Or was it something that you were already sort of putting together, as, as you said, like while you were inside? 30 some odd years later. Wow. Wow. <laughs> never never occurred to me because my getting out was, you know, first of all, you yeah. know, <laughs> boy, I dodged a fucking bullet there. And it was, you know, getting to work, putting myself into work, immersing myself into work, um, you know, having a family, having two kids, growing up, being a father, mm-hmm. you know, doing all the things that I would God help me would not have had the opportunity to do had things not gone uh, in a very particular sequence of events. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful for that. And and it wasn't until, like I said, almost 30 years. Well, I published in 2017. I started writing the book in about a fall of 2015. It took me only 10 minutes to scratch out what I have, what I had at that time. But then as I got a, as I did get my literary agent, and um, my publisher and I worked with um, I worked with my editor at the time was a man called Yanev Koha, who would um, 
I had him for the first four. I, I was contracted for an 80,000 word document for St. Mountain's Press. I wrote over 250,000 words putting the book together. Because the, like I said, I mean, dude, we were only getting started. You know, I could write for fucking yeah. ever. Um, but I had to condense it down into the version in which you read now. Plus, during halfway through the editing process, about forty thousand words into it, uh, Yanov took a job at um, uh, at Doubleday, or at, I'm sorry, at Random House Publishing. He became their senior executive editor. Well, the senior executive editor of St. Martin's Press, who championed my I book in the beginning to Susan Robbins, the publisher, Mark Resnick's finishing up a book called American Sniper, um, a story about Chris Kyle, the, uh, the, the deadliest sniper in the Marine Corps' history here mm-hmm. in the United States. And once he finished the editing of that book and Jan had left, he took over and, and, and helped me with the second half of the book. But throughout the entire writing of this, and it wound up with 86,000 words because that's as small as I could make it. And out of the writing of those 86,000 words, the book only took three edits. That was it. Three edits. And my and my literary agent um, emailed me one day with three words in all caps. Wow! Exclamation point. Just wow! Exclamation point. <laughs> Nothing like that. He's never seen anything like that. Three edits on an entire book because... You know, and that's either a testament to my writing uh, ability and my ability to tell a story, and it's a testament to Mark allowing me to have free reign and free will over writing something that he can't really edit, dude. You can't edit historical context, mm-hmm. you know, be taken, you know, and because of my background in writing that I that I never it, in prison that I never thought I would ever fall back on, you know, helped me with you know, helped me along with that process quite a bit, you know, and I wrote it under what's called the Chicago Manual of Style of Writing. And uh, as opposed to an English style or American style of writing, which are more um, more usage of 10 and $15 words, if you will, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of putting it. Chicago style, uh, Emanuel style allows me to tell the story in my own voice and be still in a lot of ways grammatically correct within the confines of that writing style. So it doesn't come off like a third grader wrote the goddamn thing, you know, but it allowed me to be my own voice and tell you the story exactly the way I'm telling it you, but still remain grammatically correct. And that's what I think makes it a fun book for, you know, whatever, um, generation you're from i've had i've had kids in sixth grade friend of mine father get stopped after school for picking up his kid and said you know your son had one of the most interesting book reports today (laughs) about this guy who he says that you're friends with you know and he's talking about my book right (laughs) yeah we know the guy he's local he lives right around here you know and so a sixth grader writing a report on my book and at the gym, I have these, you know, 92-year-old man sitting there on his machine one day, and he grabs me by the shirt on the way by, and he goes, you know what? He says, when we were kids, and he knew my story. He knew that I had written this book in my history and, you know, in the in the industry and like that. And he said, you know, when we were kids, we used to, and he starts telling me and opening up to me. And that's the coolest thing about being this person is that regardless of who you are, what side of the fence you sit on, 
people are willing to open up and tell me about their little bats red secrets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Plus people who are not into this culture and, and don't smoke marijuana, it's benefiting them in a way by which it helps them understand that, you know, there was a way that this was done and could be done in a nonviolent fashion, not what you see in the movies and all this bullshit and stuff like that. That's dramatiz that's dramatization and, and writer's license in order for them to engage you into what people are interested in. People are mostly um, wanting to see in a, you know, in a, in a genre such as this, which is always violently associated with, you know, criminal activity and things like that. Well, because that didn't exist, it draws in everybody, whether you're for it or you're against it. Mm -hmm. Because what it helps you to understand is the non-volatility in which, you know, in the way in which we, we, operated but it also and i hope by the messages that i portray the message i try to put out there whether it be on a news report or it be on a, a podcast or it be at a, a cannabis festival or something like that to help people understand that you know if you're going to and now that you have the legal right the legal choice to either smoke marijuana or not smoke marijuana, whether it be medicinal or recreational, you have that legal choice now. Mm -hmm. How do you want to go into your first experience? Do you want to go into it understanding of, about us and how kids grew up nonviolently in a in a Caribbean marijuana industry, or do you want to grow, or do you want to take it and hear it and, and take the side of what's taking place on our southern border in Mexico and all the the death and mayhem and destruction, and you know what's mm. what's taking place over a simple plant over marijuana? This just mm. totally proves that you know that can be done in such a way that families were able to do it. And if you think about this, it, it totally makes sense. And uh, you know, I'll I'll go ahead and pause and 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 let you go at this time. If you think about it, what parent? And if you're a parent, and you'll understand this, and anybody listening who is a parent will will absolutely understand this. What parent in their right mind would send their child offshore to meet a boat from another country loaded with marijuana, and not fear for them being shot at or killed or whatever like that? No parent in their right mind would ever do that. But we were able to do that because the people we were dealing with were family and generational just as we were. They were trusted as every bit as much as we were trusted. Nowhere in this world and nowhere geographically, anywhere on this planet could this ever happen again in the way it happened. We were very unique and the situation was very unique. Mm -hmm. And we got away with it up, up until we didn't. <laughs> yeah. So... There you are, my friend. Wow, um, I've got two quick questions, and then yeah, we'll we'll wrap we'll wrap this up. I mean, my audience are used to to long episodes. It's been a while since we've done one this long, but we'll uh, yeah, I just have to feel I I, I want to ask them uh, basically. Um, so with Florida, isn't obviously one of the so-called rec states that we see in America. Obviously, there's like twenty three at the minute that have passed some form of state <laughs> legislation. Not recreational, it's, it's medicinal. Medicinal. So is there, obviously, I mean, I don't want to get into the politics of it and whatever else, but from my interpretation, this side of the pond, the governor's not as pro-rec as uh, some other state governors. And so that's kind of, there's been a, 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 an issue there. My, my, my question is more to the, is anything happening to kind of 
honor the legacy or to allow those same areas to participate in the emerging legal industry because frankly it's legacy and it's sacrifice of these people helped build it across the united states i, I just i look at mendocino these days and of the like 250 well, families that were there there's so few left of the actual people that built the fucking scene on the west coast domestically speaking pops that, that in the emerald triangle that actually mm-hmm. began taking it seriously and growing serious marijuana Yes, mm. you're absolutely right. The Humboldt, Trinity, and uh, Mendocino counties create the Emerald Triangle in Northern California. And, you know, when they took us out of the scene, out of the picture with Operation Peacemaker, and I had had a visit with the, and was invited actually to the office of the Director of Homeland Security for, for here in Southwest Florida. He wanted to meet a legend. I laughed at him. I said, a legend. He says, yeah, come and talk to me if you were if you're willing to. We had a rather long conversation one afternoon about things that I didn't have any, I wasn't privy to, and, and a lot of things that he was never privy to. But what it all boiled down to quite significantly was, and I got this from almost every uh, um, agent that I've ever spoken to involved in this case, or any of these cases, was that, and it comes out just like this, I wish they would just legalize the shit and get it over with. <laughs> Mm. and and that's the truth of it you know um because um the united states government has recently and is going to here quite recently remove marijuana from what they call a schedule one narcotic mm-hmm. narcotics and drugs in the united states are are um, classified in schedules schedule one being um lsd heroin um, methamphetamine and marijuana schedule mm. two uh, it's nothing sorry okay. sorry to co- correct you i think uh, it's it's mdma schedule one meth is actually scheduled two or three because of its use as adderall it actually has well, medicinal two- value in their their interpretation yeah we have the same scheduling sort of a very loosely similar system over here of scheduling okay well um what uh what what it basically boils down to is that it's finally getting the position in which it deserves i mean it mm. there for the longest time the united states um disavowed any knowledge of it having any medicinal properties whatsoever when science says otherwise but mm. when your scientific evidence is coming from a non-sanctioned united states government entity which they're not allowing because it's against the law under federal guidelines um it doesn't it doesn't have credibility and it hasn't had credibility until recently when the united states government several years ago decided to not entertain with funding or budgeting to interfere with state law regarding marijuana they allow them to do that on their own mm-hmm. they just step back and step out of it because they see what's coming down the pipe they see that ultimately within the next two years every state in the united states will have some sort of recreation or medical aspect to their to the cannabis, you know that they're that they're selling, they're not willing to ultimately lose out on a on a multi-billion-dollar taxable um, industry. That if they keep going the way they're going, they're going to miss out on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're going to wind up, you know, incrementally working their way back in. But the biggest and most important factor with that regard is simply that the language of the law, as it is written under the United States government has to be changed Mm. 
It has to be rewritten. The language has to be rewritten to allow these changes to be made. Otherwise, they're bound to the language that they didn't write. They're still mm -hmm. bound to it. So until legislation changes and that language changes, it's still going to be federally illegal. And that day is coming. And it's coming quite simply because people who are now my age, baby boomers and whatnot, as they're called, are now becoming the people who are occupying these positions of political influence and importance. Mm -hmm. And because they're of my age, they understand the, the cannabis industry the way we understand it. And they know now that, boy, did we make a big boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> we really screwed up, you know, because mm -hmm. they had it going on for so long. And what people, a lot of people don't understand is, you know, this history goes back to the first original British colonies here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Those 13 original British colonies were instructed to grow one crop and one crop only, and that crop was hemp. The oil they burned in the lamps that they used at night was made from hemp oil. Every mm -hmm. sail on every ship, every rope on every ship from antiquity up until World War II was made of cannabis. Mm -hmm. The word canvas is Latin for cannabis. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? They ruined that industry. It, hemp products, hemp, I don't know if you've ever worn a, a, a t-shirt made from hemp. It is one of the most supple, the most comfortable, the most breathable, the most pleasant thing to have on your body. And the government outlawed it because mm -hmm. they considered that a close cousin to marijuana and they scheduled it the same goddamn way. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that they would do something like that mm -hmm. to take something that has the ability to save our dying planet. You can make bottles out of clear plant cellulose is what it's called. Mm -hmm. I have rolling papers made out of clear plant cellulose mm -hmm. made from plants. There's a car made in um, Canada called a Castrell. It's a totally, um, nearly 100% um, made from hemp. Mm -hmm. Even the clear windows in the car were made from clear cellulose, clear plant cellulose. The only thing that was not was the, 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 um, the drive um, train mechanisms and the engines and, and whatnot mm -hmm. were the only ones that were not. They actually took a Castrell, dug a hole, buried in the ground. Two years later, came back, and the only thing that was in there was the engine and the transmission in the frame to the car that was it everything mm -hmm. else biodegraded mm -hmm. henry ford 19 in the early 30s visiting and putting on a demonstration at the united states one of the united states world's fairs put on a demonstration between uh a, a model a two model a's sitting side by side one was made out of a metal body one was made out of a carbon composite of the hemp his demonstration throughout this whole expo was to take an axe and swing it and stick it in the metal bumper of that metal car, and, and he would pry it and pull it out. He'd walk next door to the hemp body car and swing it and hit that son of a bitch as hard as he could, and that thing bounced back so hard it almost took his head off. He didn't mm -hmm. make one dent in it, not one scratch in it. Mm -hmm. It's the most durable product, and, and, and what's the United States government done with it? Shelved it, put it, buried it, took it out, mm -hmm. of, the, out, of, you know, out of the scene. Mm -hmm. Every plastic bottle that's polluting every river and every ocean on our planet, the, the, the garbage patch in the Pacific is mostly plastic. 
That could have all been eliminated had it all been made from hemp. And there was a possibility that could have done that. But when the United States decided that they were going to get rid of marijuana for two reasons. The Mexicans, migrants were bringing it over back in the early 30s. They were bringing it over to the United States and using it recreationally after work. It was their pastime. It was what they did after work to relax and unwind. Well, it made its way up and around the Gulf Coast and into Louisiana, made it into the jazz scene. And, of course, blacks in the jazz scene, now they're smoking marijuana. So the government at that time, uh, Randolph Hearst was one of the major um, uh, media outlets within this country. He owned a majority of the newspapers that were being read across the country, and, which, and that was their social media at the time. When you read what you read in the newspaper, it was gospel. Well, he partnered up with Harry Anslinger, who was our first drug czar back in those days, and created this propaganda program whereby they started bashing you know, the the, the Mexicans for having brought this here. And the reason why they're doing that is because it's made its way into the jazz scenes and the blacks are now smoking it and the blacks are smoking it and raping your white women and children and your girl, you know, and your kids. And, you know, they just turned it into this thing in which it was not, you know, hence the movie reefer madness. If you've ever heard, so if you've ever heard of this movie, it's just the totally ridiculous kind of a thing, but they did that so they could put an end to it. But what they did by doing that was put an end to the hemp. I can remember as a kid going to the movies and between movies on a double feature, they would show these Midwest farmers with these big giant thrashers going through hemp fields and producing hemp because everything that the GIs were using in World War I and World War II, their tents, their fatigues, their boots, their backpacks, their belts, everything that they wore was made from hemp. Mm. And it was durable. It was light. It was functional. And they just destroyed that industry. And in fact, wound up ultimately not knowing, destroying our earth at the same time by polluting it with plastics, which is ridiculous to think about. But that's a whole other yeah, subject. Yeah. That's a whole thing. But, you know, just the cannabis, just cannabis industry as a whole has been has been muddied up and dirtied and, and given such a bad rap that a story like this is necessary. A story like this is necessary to be told to those who uh, wish to not remain ignorant or those who are ignorant that, that could use a little bit of a lesson, you know, and a little bit more of a better understanding about that, which they know nothing. And I'm just a guy that can do that, you know, and I have to say in closing, simple that, I may be touted and offered these accolades as far as being the biggest pot holler and the biggest this and that. Well, I don't accept that. Um, thank you. I appreciate the accolade. I appreciate, you know, the, the sentiment and the feeling behind it because I understand it. But what it boils down to quite simply is that I could not have done this on my own. It took literally hundreds of Ball, brass bald men and women that I grew up with to do the things that we did and do them in the manner and the size in which we did them. So I can't take the complete pat on the back for this. Mm -hmm. I can facilitate their activity, but it takes them to follow through and make it work. So, you know, thank you to them, you know, yeah. and, and they degree, they deserve as much accolade as I do because Everybody behind the scenes that came up behind me faced this, you know, 
uh, these life sentences at one point or another for doing just exactly what we all believed in doing and and quite simply trying to um, supply a demand that was insatiable. Right. And it literally took a small group of people to satisfy the demands of a larger one. Mm-hmm. And this is the story that I tell. And I thank you so very much for your time, Simple. This has just been absolutely incredible. I love this shit, man. And, and I'm excited for your viewers and your subscribers to hear this. Me too. Me too, brother. Um, I'll add a couple of comments, if that's all right, and then ask you my last cliched question that I ask every guest. Um, Bring it up. But yeah, you articulated it wonderfully there about the divergence of cannabis and the creation, as it were, of hemp and marijuana with the J to make it sound uh, Hispanic and the racism of Harry Anslinger and his legacy, not just through uh, the precursor agency of the DEA, through the DEA, and then into international stance on the national the drug committee under the UN that formed after right. this. And he sat on that in, into this, deep into the 60s. And so that racism, that position, that ignorance, that bigotry persisted. And as you say, the the hemp for victory campaign in the States, there's a few academics that are scratching the surface and there is a certain narrative, and I'll put allegedly here in big, big letters, that it was gunpowder as well. Again, um, this is probably going to get me in trouble somewhere with the YouTube masters. Allegedly, if you look at ancient Chinese recipes, um, you potentially could make an explosive from the roots of of, of cannabis. Um, so there's, there's an interest. I've been picking at that for a while, and I'm waiting for someone in my comments to jump in and go, oh, I've got a, a source for that. Um, but I have heard this now. I have heard this. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll copy you in for sure if, if I find out. But I, I agree. I think the U.S. has got... Uh, uh, an obligation now on the international stage. It's allowing what it's allowing in different pockets and whatever. And yeah, there's the rescheduling, but cannabis should be, for me, as free as tobacco or or alcohol because all they're going to do is there's generations of kids right now that are becoming saltwater cowboys in different ways because even in their legalized states, there's still a black market. There's still the supply not being met. The culture is not being heard. The right people, that village that helped you, you do what you did, their needs are not being met. And these corporate, you know, cashed cow individuals, the same people that funded all the politicians for generations of vilified demonized and tracked you guys and now going how much can we make from this yeah invest 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 while the little guy is still hungry and i just hope that people like yourself telling these stories embolden these communities to go no 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 no. where's our fucking peace we give you what you have now pay it forward and i hope it's somewhere that this this podcast plays a part to that man um because it's it's a fantastic story yeah as you know one message, if nothing else, one message that I would like to everybody to take away from this is simply the fact that, you know, regardless of where you sit on this this issue um, in this culture or this genre regarding um, cannabis, um, something should always be understood, and, and it's important that you that that most people do, and they understand that, um, you know, even though what you know we were kids doing what we were doing. And, and regardless of the time in which we were doing it, what it's done and what I hope this message can do, regardless of what venue um, it's portrayed on, um, sheds a light on, you know, and helps you 
to make a decision now that you're capable and legally uh, allowed to make a decision, particularly here in the United States. Um, I would like to help them and, and, and help them to understand that the, by making this the decision that they're making, they're not in any way contributing in contributing to what's taking place on our southern border. Um, that should not be a factor, you know, in them making this decision. The decision-making process should come by way of um, listening to my story and listening to how a group of families um, who are just like you and myself and just like every other buddy, every other brother and the guy you pass on the street, we're no different than anybody else. But what we would like you to understand is quite simply that, um, you know, now that you have this right to make this decision, do you want to go into it with the knowledge of knowing that, you know, having this vision in your mind of this cool Rasta dude standing in the middle of 200 acres of virgin bud in the blue mountains in, in Jamaica and, and, you know, in his cool dreads and his no shirt and it's cut off jeans and barefoot, just tending to the crop and just, you know, you know, just loving on the ganja and making it the best they can make it yeah. or envision this, the, the little old guy in Colombia and his, you know, his cotton hat, his cotton blouse and cotton pants and his family out there on a, in their white cotton dressings, you know, taking care of the plants and doing this sort of thing. And, you know, mm. giving you that home vibe, giving you that, that sense of ease and that sense of, um, you know, relaxation which is what the drug uh, drug or, or or plant or whatever you wish to call it creates for you you know mm -hmm. um i would rather have them going into it envisioning that than envisioning a picture of some poor bastard from mexico he's got this bale strapped on the back of his on his back and it's got to get it somewhere near phoenix and in lieu of his family being held hostage in mexico until that happens you know I don't want them to go into this, you know, with with that in their mind. I want them to go into it in their mind, knowing that there was a time in which it existed that this could be done the way we did it. Mm -hmm. Fun. We made it fun to be able to do. As dangerous as it was, like I said, don't allow that joviality to belie the seriousness. To, but you can't go into this and approach this in that serious mode all the time. Otherwise, you're going to be so freaked out, you're going to wind up fucking up at some point in time. You know, yeah. and this is what I want people to understand. And this is how I want them to maybe influence their choice on whether or not to try it, because now you have the legal right to do so mm -hmm. and do it knowing that there were people like me and the people that I grew up with that were just like yourself. We didn't want to hurt anybody. We just wanted to give what everybody wanted to have. And God's honest truth, Jimmy, Teddy wasn't lying when he said, we just couldn't get it in here fast enough because the millions of pounds of shit that we brought in here, it went somewhere, man. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't force it down anybody's fucking throat either. So there you go, true. my brother Simpa. So true. So true. Uh, man, yes, I suppose yeah, just the cliched last question. Uh, what does the future hold for you, man? Um, right now in, uh, Working with a studio out in LA quite closely. I've been out, I go out about twice a month, XRM Studios. We're 
uh, waiting for this goddamn writer strike and actor strike and to to get done with, and we can go ahead and proceed with the writing of the uh, um, the the script for my motion picture, which is in, in the finances that are being um, put together now for it. I think we're up somewhere around forty five million. We're looking at about maybe 80, 90 million to produce the uh, and to create the motion picture. I'm working on a television series as well as a documentary. So I've got a lot of yeah. stuff going on. It's taking quite a bit to do. And it's a very bit of a daunting task is getting a book published in, 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 as well as getting a movie or a television series made. It's just as yeah. daunting of a task to do. And it takes the right type of people to believe in the story. And, and um it's it's always very much one thing for me to sit here with guys like yourself and you know and uh i have to say you haven't really said much but you're really quite good at what you do man um <laughs> it's very easy for me to sit here and impart these stories the way i do but it's almost it's also very much another thing for them to get off their ass or not even get off their ass just go down your phone and push a goddamn button and buy the book <laughs> mm. so it's really simple to do because what you're hearing and a lot of what you're hearing is is not in the book the books, there's all the crazy shit that's in the book. I'm there's just too much to tell for me to do that. Like, yeah. you know, growing up with that amount of money and the and the adults always being cognizant and willing to help you understand how to spend money without having anything to show for it. Because if you start got, getting stupid and buying Ferraris and Porsches and shit like that, and you know, gaudy goddamn diamond rings and building bigger houses, well, you're done, man. Mm -hmm. You just don't work anymore. Because now you're in your liability. You're no longer an asset. So it was important for them to teach us their ways how to spend money, did not have anything to show for it. But it was in our, we took it to, upon ourselves to figure out in our own ways. And they were a lot of fun, man. Ways how to figure out how to spend money and not have anything to show for it just by pissing it off, pissing it away. And I'll leave you with one scenario, and that is, me and four of my buddies took two hundred thousand dollars each one weekend for a four day week for a four day long weekend from Miami to South Beach, and we took the tab every night for every club from Miami to South Beach. We took over the entire tab. We took a million dollars between us with the sole intentions of having just enough gas money to drive home, <laughs> just to get rid of money because there was mm -hmm. more coming. I mean, mm -hmm. that's how sick it was. But anyways, I could wow. go on and on, and I would, you know, I just love to chat with you again, simply because you've been just an awesome dude. And I, you know, like I said, I, I I love my UK audience, man. Mm. They're, they're cool. Yeah, man, for, for sure. We'll 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 get you back on. Now we've kind of we've got the bulk of your story out there. I, I imagine there's gonna be quite a lot of comments uh, and questions from people. So yeah, I'll I'll correlate them and get back to you, and we'll we'll definitely get you back in the hot seat again. And continue this conversation because as you say there is just so much lived uh, and living experience there that in, in stories that so people need to hear of as you say a time before the violence before cartels before the war on drugs really became terroristic became you know multinational became vicious violent and malevolent you know right right and that's once again the, the common misconception. I mean, it's that doesn't that's not to say that it didn't occur from time to time from from different people to different people because different scenarios take place. Of, obviously, when you've got all your money online, mm. you know, of course you're going to be very protective of it. And if you're dealing it out or you're fronting it out and you don't get paid, you're going to have you no. Know, there's going to be some retribution involved in that, and that's how that begins. But when it comes to us, we never owned the shit. 
Mm-hmm. And like I said in the math, I got 32 chances to get your shit in before you can even decide to get pissed at me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. And I never lost the load that I never gave away. And what I mean by that is if I can buy for $10 a pound, I could spend $170,000 of my own money, put 17,000 pounds of shit on a, on a rickety old boat that's not even registered. It belongs to one of my buddies and put it offshore and set it adrift on Naples and have three or four guys from Naples call the law on that boat out there. And next thing you know coast guards there marine pros there all the you know the cops are out there and they're all score while i'm moving 40 tons in down here <laughs> yeah. and it only cost me 170 thousand bucks to get i mean to get them off my ass and mm-hmm. i made 2.6 million on that job down there so what do i give a shit you know i mean this is how it was so I'll yeah. leave you with that, my friends, and uh, there's plenty more where that came from. <laughs> uh, Tim, it's 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 been a pleasure. It's really been a pleasure. Uh, I'll include, yeah, like I said, links where people can get your book and and relevant media sources, etc. Um, yeah, go off and enjoy your day, brother. You Thank you for your time. I'm at Instagram at Original Saltwater Cowboy. Feel free to you know jump in and you know. DM me, say hello, you know, and I'd be I'd be happy to, you know, stay hey back. Yeah, I'm yes. just that kind of guy. You know, I'm available. I'm I'm accessible. I'm yeah. easy to reach. <laughs> nice man. People appreciate that. People appreciate that. And I'm sure they've they've enjoyed your your authenticity and your honesty here. So thank you again for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, Sepa. And um, once again, thank you to you and thank you to your subscribers and your viewers and those who may pass this on. You know, I hope you I hope you enjoy it and, and you know, and understand it for really what it is. You know, this is history. Mm-hmm. And that's why my book required historical text, you know, which shocked the shit out of me, man. But hey, bad, there you go. Bad. Once again, thank you and uh, God bless you, man. You do you. you do good work. I appreciate, Get appreciate it. Out. Keep telling the story, man. You're doing awesome. Always, always. I uh, appreciate Really appreciate it, brother. Um, I'll let you leave now, and I'll do my general housekeeping, my summation, and uh, get this recording finished. So, yeah, thanks again for your time, brother. Take it easy. Peace. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry. This is going to be a f- my first four-hour podcast. I'm not going to cut this in half. I think this story deserves to be in one chunk. Um I'm a bit blown away by that, really. Just had a really nice conversation of pre and post recording there as well. So I got to know Tim a bit more. Um, and wow. Like I said, the, the numbers, as we kind of alluded to at the start, are so difficult to quantify um, when you start to think of, of the level. Um, like I said, his, 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 like he said, the book is, is thoroughly researched and verified. Um there is an unbelievable amount of media that has been sort of digitized uh, that documents this from local press, national press, court documents, etc. And yeah, I'm going to try and do my best to obviously put the images in that we discussed uh, in the different areas to try and aid in, you know, helping you visualize um, kind of the more, I guess, unbelievable aspects of this story, not unbelievable in the sense that they didn't happen, but unbelievable in the sense that, in that that way that fact is always you know stranger than fiction or in this case i guess more unbelievable than fiction um but yeah 
definitely getting a copy of that uh, his book as soon as possible and getting that read. That's going on to my endless pile of books that I'm reading. Um, yeah, I'm a bit bit blown away here by this guy. It's like it's I do feel like I've just binged the documentary series, which I imagine is what yourselves probably feel like as well at this point. Um, really looking forward to seeing what happens when the the actors strike, the writers strike. Um, hopefully gets resolved. You know, fucking Netflix and Disney and the the big fucks need to pull the fingers out and sort that shit out. The sooner we can get these series and these documentaries on the go, I'm, I'm incredibly interested to see who who uh the studios get to play tim um but yeah be interesting to see who gets cast anyway i'm waffling on here it's late at night i've been sat here for four hours straight now that was a phenomenal conversation but i need to go and process all of this so i'm going to go roll uh, a very nice joint have a nice cup of tea and go relax for the evening i hope you beautiful people enjoy your day nights i suppose there are any options whatever time of day it is um that you're listening to this and yeah please do if you enjoyed this give us a like share subscribe rating i'm trying to think what else you do on online platforms these days uh whatever it is you do to show interaction appreciation appreciate the interaction um so thank you very much guys uh obviously yeah hit us up subscribe on youtube and spotify this helps uh bump up the numbers because frankly the language and the content of the conversations i bring to you fine folks mean that i am not the algorithm's most favorite podcast on any platform currently online uh no matter what i do to try and update i'm obviously tweaking things here and there but still yeah, not quite reaching the numbers that I believe this content deserves, frankly. And I'm not saying that egoically. I think because of the quality of the guests that we have on. Yeah, follow us on all social media platforms at The Simple Life. And yeah, check us out on patreon.com forward slash The Simple Life, where for less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep the lights on in this project. So wherever you are in the world, make the most of the day. Tell somebody you love you that you love them. Share a hug. Spread some love. Go be nice. Right, see you next week. <laughs>